Thank you, everybody, for uh, your patience during this little bit of delay. We had some technical things to work out. As you can see, we've got a fairly big array of equipment here and talented people working it. Um, apparently, the Wi-Fi was not uh, quite as uh, muscular as we might have hoped. That was one problem. But uh, I think we've got the bugs uh, worked out of it. And the reason we have all this, of course, is uh, we want to reach a bigger audience than the people in this room. I've been walking around and chatting with some of you, and I get a real sense of excitement and, uh, and anticipation from the folks I talk to that they want a process that is going to bring the truth out. And that's what the NCI, the National Citizens' Inquiry, and the commissioners are here to deliver to the people of Canada, and that's the truth. So this is the first of uh, nine hearings that are going to be held across the country. Uh, the first one being here in Truro, National Citizens Inquiry. And uh, it's for each three-day hearings. And I want to welcome the commissioners. I want to welcome the witnesses, on-site guests, all those following the proceedings from home. My name is Chess Crosby. I'm a longtime lawyer in Newfoundland and Labrador, and I focused on medical malpractice and class actions. I have a King's Council designation, and I was leader of the opposition in the House of Assembly in Newfoundland and Labrador. That's when I chose non-practicing status, so I'm not a practicing lawyer. This means I can't give legal advice or act as a barrister and solicitor in the courts, my position under the rules of this commission is administrator. The commission is consensual, it makes its own rules, and has no legal powers based in statute. It's based on the desire of Canadians for the truth. Um, now, I'd ask uh, commissioners, uh, in light of this truth-seeking mission, to just say a few words about who they are and uh, why it is they've chosen to um, devote such substantial volunteer time to the mission of this commission of truth-seeking. Perhaps we could start on this side. Ken? Hi, I'm uh, Ken Drysdale. I'm a professional engineer with 41 <coughs> years of experience. I, um, I spent a lot of that time uh, preparing forensic engineering reports for various technical issues, and so that's kind of the background that I bring to this. On a more human side, I have six children, four grandchildren, two step or two um, uh, godchildren, and that's the reason I'm here. Good morning. My name is Janice. Kai Conan. I am here for all sorts of reasons like you. I really believe that the truth must prevail in all of our discussions. I'm hoping for open discussion and debate to come back into this country and that the freedom of expression, our constitutional rights and freedoms are honored once again as the bedrock of our foundation. I have seven children and 17 grandchildren. I often have to think about how many there are. 
I work with vulnerable populations, the people who are most at risk in my day-to-day. I'm an academic and I'm also a researcher. And most recently I was elected as a school board trustee in Ontario. So I live on a farm. I raise turkeys as well. So I kind of cover, have all the bases covered. (laughs) And I'm here to hear you. I'm so thankful that there's so many of you who are willing to step up and to speak. I think it's very important and we will do you justice and we're going to listen. Thank you. Hi, my name is Heather DiGregorio. I am a lawyer from Calgary, Alberta. I've been practicing um, at a regional firm in Alberta for close to 20 years. Um, My area of law has been tax, so a little bit uh, different from what we're talking about here. Um, I've appeared at uh, all levels of court uh, for tax, the Tax Court of Canada, the Federal Court of Appeal, uh, most recently at the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, But why I'm really here is my wish is that we have an honest and open inquiry here uh, with a group of people who we've all committed to be open-minded and to hear from Canadians Um, and really get to the bottom of what it is that we did as a country in our pandemic response and what effect did it have on us. Um, And we want to determine, was there anything we did that worked? Uh, What can we do different next time? And we're here to listen. We're here to learn. And we're going to come up with recommendations uh, on how to deal with the next one that comes along. And that's why I'm here. Bonjour à tous. Mon nom est Bernard Massy. Je suis un consultant en biotechnologie. Je suis retiré, en fait retiré. J'ai pris ma retraite comme scientifique du Conseil national de recherche où j'ai œuvré pendant 35 ans en biotechnologie avec une expertise dans les anticorps thérapeutiques et les vaccins à base adénovirus. I'm going to translate that immediately. So my name is Bernard Messi. I'm a retired independent consultant in biotechnology. Been working at the NRC for 35 years in the area of, to simplify, therapeutic antibody development and adenoviral-based vaccines. So I'm bringing to the table, I would say, scientific expertise, therapeutic antibody and as the other member of the commissioner of, of the commission on a human level, I was really, I would say, amiss with all of the story I was hearing from the scientific community and medical community, which to me didn't jive with my understanding of the science, and I wanted to go to the bottom of it. So that's why I thought I could join the inquiry and listen to people that can actually bring their perspective on what's, what happened during this crisis of, uh, uh, pan- of the pandemic. J'ai aussi cinq enfants, deux petits-enfants, et je suis très préoccupé par l'avenir de ces enfants. I have five children and two grandchildren, and I'm really concerned with the world we're trying to build for them. And I'd like to see something different for the future. And I'm hoping that with this inquiry, we're gonna let truth emerge and we're gonna try to find ways to do better next time. 
Thank you kindly, commissioners. Um, there's a fifth commissioner, Christiane Grieb, who um, has a very distinguished track record. She has a PhD in history. She knows a lot about war crimes and crimes against human rights. Uh, she's a practicing lawyer in Alberta, and she'll be able to say a bit more about herself when she appears at the next hearing. Our rules provide for commissioners if, in case of necessity, to um, not attend, but they have to uh, either be present virtually so that they can be taking in the evidence as it comes out, or they can review it later. It gives us that bit of extra, uh, extra flexibility. Um, now, given the time uh, thing that's gone on here, as much as I might like my own opening remarks, I'm going to suspend them for right now, and I think we'll go straight into the evidence I might get a chance to make these remarks uh, anticipating the evidence that the commissioner should expect to hear uh, sometime later in the proceedings. But right now, I guess we should really go to our first witness. Are we okay with that? Are we ready to go? Okay, let's go. Good morning, everyone. Uh, this certainly isn't about me, but just by way of very brief introduction. My name is Chad Horton, and I'm a partner of McGilvery uh, Injury and Insurance Law. And I'm here today and for the next couple of days to help facilitate this process and help these witnesses tell their stories. Dr. Milburn. Sitting in front of a lawyer is a place a doctor never wants to be. <laughs> Before we get into the details of your examination, can you kindly provide the commission uh, with an overview of your education, training, and experience? Sure. So my name is, my name is Chris Milburn. I'm a native Nova Scotian. I for uh, I graduated in 1999. I've been a full-time eMERGE doc. Uh, been involved with family medicine, but uh, also. Importantly, for the purposes of this, I've been quite involved with public health um, in several roles, both on several local committees, local initiatives over many years. I was a member and then head of the Canadian Medical Association Committee on Healthcare and Promotion, which is one of their core committees that dealt with public health issues. I was a longtime member and then the uh, chairman for the uh, Doctors Nova Scotia Public Health Issues Committee. So I have a foot in public health and a foot in frontline medicine. Now, you may have somewhat answered this question already, um, but what are your primary primary areas of interest and involvement in medicine? Yeah, so uh, emergency medicine and, and public health are probably at the very opposite poles. Public health deals with um, populations and big picture recommendations, what's best for this population. Emergency medicine is the most focused part of medicine. It's one patient, one problem at one instant of time. So um, I have a real interest in both of those, uh, which are in a way polar opposites, but they really do should, they really should connect. Okay. And what was your specific role in early 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic? 
So uh, when the pandemic began, I was, uh, from the public health point of view, I was still the chair of the Public Health Issues Committee for Doctors Nova Scotia, but I was also uh, uh, the chief of emergency medicine for Eastern Nova Scotia, for the, the Eastern Zone of Nova Scotia Health Authority. So I oversaw, I had a, a kind of a, a high level um, oversight role on 13 different uh, emergency room and urgent care centers from Antigonish right up to the tip of uh, Northern Cape Breton. Can you explain your professional responsibilities as the emergency room chief of the Eastern Zone? Uh, yeah, so I was I, I was responsible for making sure that we had a coherent approach to uh, to providing emergency care for that zone, and so that you, you can imagine that was kind of a broad role. And so uh, when COVID hit. My role was to take all these new policies and procedures and to make sure that um, our our staff at all the different sites was uh, aware of what the approach was going to be, what was the safest and best approach to see a patient who might be infected with COVID. Um, so I had, uh, you know, I was really kind of taking the policies and procedures that were being developed at a high level and trying to uh, get our staff on the front lines up to speed. Okay. So setting aside your duties as, as chief of emergency, um, but within your role as an emergency room physician, uh, and I appreciate this number likely varies, but on average, how many patients could you expect to treat in the run of a regular week? Yeah, so to some degree, my schedule is flexible, but in a full week where I might do, say, five shifts, I could see up to 150 patients a week. So I was more or less functioning as a full-time eMERGE doc and doing the chief job as a, sort of in my spare time, we'll say. That sounds busy. Uh, yeah, I'm not, never bored. So can you, can, can you confirm for the record... Um, Dr. Milburn, that you've actually provided me with a copy of your CV. Yes, I, I have given you my CV. Okay, and I'll make we'll make that available to the commission. So, based on your education, training, experience, and any clinical clinical literature that you had read or were familiar with, uh, what was your understanding of the danger posed to public health by COVID nineteen? Um, yeah. Uh, I'll try to give you a brief answer. So when when COVID first reared its spiky head in China, there was a lot of a lot of fear. I was one of the ones who was afraid because we have a very uh, unstable and fractured emergency system already with a lot of uh, worker shortages. So we were struggling to provide care. And when we kind of looked at um, uh, you know first China and then Italy and then New York City, we were quite afraid of what might come. Um, at first, we thought. You know, we were given the idea that there's an extremely high mortality rate and that, you know, every quote unquote, everyone was at risk. Uh, that was actually a quote from our, our, our premier at one point. But we very quickly in the first month or two, the data started to come out. The average age of death was, you know, 80 or more than 80 in uh, Italy. It, it became clear pretty quickly that this it was very what we call the risk age stratified. And it turns out that for a young, healthy person, the risk is maybe somewhere around one five thousandth to one ten thousandth of the risk for an elderly, unwell person. So we by the summer, certainly by the June or July of 2020, that risk age stratification of risk was becoming apparent. Okay. 
Now, would you have been in a position in your role as an emergency doctor and chief to personally observe the impact of both the COVID-19 illness and also the impact of COVID policy measures on Nova Scotians in your area of responsibility being the Eastern Zone? Yeah, for sure. So we, you know, we had sick COVID patients, um, mostly, almost entirely elderly or what we call comorbid. And that was an issue, but I believe in my, in my experience, it pales in comparison to the issues that I saw both as, as chief, you know, secondhand, but also just personally working as a frontline doc. Uh, the, the impact that things like hospital shutdowns had, like, for instance, I can rhyme off several patients who died of cancers that I believe they didn't need to die of because their care was delayed. Um, I had patients who were scheduled for joint replacements who were living in chronic pain and suddenly saw the wait list stretch out over the horizon for them. Um, I saw, I, I look after a nursing home for the last few years and I saw those patients locked down. I saw patients in nursing homes give, give up, stop eating and die because they were essentially prisoners and couldn't see family. You know, I watched, I watched family outside windows crying, looking at patients inside. So I saw these terrible impacts of COVID policy and they were much more uh, prevalent. They were a much bigger issue than the impacts of actual COVID. So, can you just can you just repeat your conclusion again? Uh, what what you just said at the end? You're saying, yeah, I think we there's a lot of talk <clears throat> on the impacts of COVID when we hear this in the mainstream news, or we hear politicians or bureaucrats talking about it. We talk about how COVID impacted us in the last few years, but. Um, although I did see some very, very elderly, very unwell people die after they got COVID, I didn't really see those. I didn't really see it shortening lifespans, but I saw major impacts on the population from COVID policy. So I, I'd like to distinguish those. There's impacts of COVID policy, which I think were huge. There's impacts of COVID, which I think were relatively small if you parse them out. So you're talking about impacts of COVID policy, or, or you spoke about that partially. I want to explore that a little bit. Now, you described numerous observations you made over a period of time. During the relevant time that you were just discussing, did you look for answers regarding either the reasoning or the data supporting the policy decisions behind the scenarios that you've just described to us? I did. Um, so as chief of emerge, I, nurses I worked with and a handful of physicians, uh, were concerned with policies. For instance, universal masking policy. Was that really necessary? Was it justified? It was extremely uncomfortable for nurses. And it, these policies were made by somebody who sat behind their own desk in Halifax and never had to wear a mask. So it was easy for them to make policy. Um, when I asked for the justification, what I ended up uh, getting back was either nothing in most cases, or when I did get back answers, the answer was 
well, our committee met and we decided. So I was never provided with justification. Here are the papers. Here are the minutes from the meetings. The committee that decided these things was uh, in camera. It was not, we were not privy to what was happening. They'd never asked for our feedback on policies. They never asked for uh, what we saw as the impact of those policies. How do you see this playing out? Is this good or bad? So uh, we, we, we did, uh, and I say we because as a group, a group of doctors behind the scenes, we sent several emails to Dr. Strang to ask for things like, for instance, what's the justification behind recommending vaccinating children? The recommendations in Nova Scotia seem to actually go against the recommendations of NACI. Um, and we, we asked, we sent formal letters. I sent informal emails and the best I ever got back was because our committee decided. Just, just one little point for, for the people watching at home or for members of the audience. When you say most of the meetings were in camera, what does that mean? Uh, it means they were private. They involved politicians, the health minister, the premier, they involved some handpicked bureaucrats, but physicians like me were not asked to be part of it. We were not privy to the notes. We were not privy to the data that was used. That Those were private, confidential meetings. And did you specifically ask for the notes or the minutes coming out of those meetings? Um, I specifically asked how those decisions were made. Could they please give me the justification? And again, I either got nothing or our committee decided, and that's why. Do you, do you have any more specific recollection of what sort of responses you got to those inquiries? Um, no, I not much recollection because the usual reply was none. Uh, emails would go off and they would disappear into a black hole and I would never hear back. They were mostly ignored. Oh, and so that, that includes recently too. I've still been asking and they're still ignored and sucked into the black hole. Oh, so no, <clears throat> excuse me. So no response whatsoever. No response was the most common response. And what was your perception about, about what was going on there? Well, I think my, my perception was very much like most people who most people who attempted to get answers. And the perception is that these decisions are uh, there's a saying when you mix politics with science, you end up with politics. And these committees were made up. They did have they did have. Uh, people like Dr. Strang and some upper level doctor bureaucrats on them. But the, the decisions I do not believe were, uh, I don't believe they were scientifically based. I think they were politically based and that's why we couldn't get an answer back because it was a political decision made for a certain appearance rather than uh, you know, following the science, so to speak. So myself as a Nova Scotian who occasionally listens to the radio, I do have some firsthand awareness of the fact that you had been in the media and had some involvement. Um, but can you briefly describe your media involvement over the years? Yeah, I, I've always been an outspoken guy. I'm willing to say my views in public and to try to back them up. Um, and so I've, I was asked for, for many years, I've appeared um, on 
I've done interviews on CBC Radio, including I was asked to be part of this thing called the Issue Panel, which is uh, a regular uh, feature of CBC Information Morning in Cape Breton, where they get three people on, they throw out an issue that's topical in the news, the three people debate it and argue it. It's kind of off the cuff. I had been on this for for a number of years. I, I can't tell you exactly how many times, but every few months I get asked to be on. And the typical... Uh, way that would happen was they'd ask me, could I be on next Thursday? Yes. And then a few days before or just the day before, I'd get an email saying, here's going to be the topics. And because of my schedule, I would typically look at that, like the, the time that this particular time that we're about to discuss, I, I looked at the email at midnight and I was to be on at 7.30. And I noticed that the topic was COVID policy. And I kind of thought, well, this is bound to be controversial, but I felt... Uh, by that time, I, I had tried to get answers from within the system, and I just felt I felt that the public needed to know that there were physicians, nurses, other people out there who had an inside view on the system but didn't agree with the policies because there was, a, a, I believe, a real attempt to make it look like all the doctors were on side. And I, I, I decided to go ahead and speak my views I made it clear that I was not speaking for NSH. I was speaking as as my own self. And uh, but I felt people needed to know there was another side to this, and some doctors felt differently. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So, when was your and and I understand from your evidence that you were on the issue panel by invitation a number of times over mm -hmm. a period of time. When is the last time you appeared on the issue panel? So, yeah. So this would be in June of 2021. The uh, the move to vaccinate every human being in Canada was well in uh, well, well in full. It was in full swing. And uh, I was I was asked to be on. Like I say, I looked at the email the night before the issues that came up that day were um, number one. Uh, the schools had just been put back in. They had been out for quite some time. They were just put back in. I was asked what I thought of them going back in. And what I said was, I don't think they should ever have been out. I think there was clear evidence that it was bad for kids to be out of school. Kids were not at risk from COVID, uh, nor were they vectors. So I don't think they ever should have been out. So that I, I kind of contradicted public health's statements in that way. Um, number two, I was asked what I thought of uh, potential vaccine passports because they were just kind of on the horizon at that point. I said, number one, I think they're unconstitutional. And I, I also made the point that these vaccines were brand new. And by definition, we did not know long-term side effects. That's not an opinion. That was just truth. And the third thing I said that turned out to be controversial was um, that I thought <clears throat> public health public health's role should be advisory, not a rulemaking body because they were unaccountable and that when we gave them this much power that some people enjoyed that amount of power and history showed uh, shows us that people who are given power only give it up reluctantly. So I made those points and that was the last time I was ever asked to be on the issue panel. <laughs> And more specifically, when when was that? What was the date? 
Yeah, so I can kind of tell you how things played out. So th- that was on a Thursday morning. Um, I got in numerous... What, what, what month in year? Uh, so, sorry, early June 2021. I can't tell you exactly the date, okay. but it, it was a Thursday morning. I got tons of, actually tons of supportive emails through the next couple of days. And then on Saturday, I got an email from friends saying, did you hear that Strang got ambushed at a press conference? And I, I looked it up. And saw the clip, and uh, Tim Bousquet of the Halifax Examiner had ambushed Dr. Strang with the questions. He said, did you hear that Milburn told people not to get vaccinated and basically said you were power hungry? So, you know, it was it was a mischaracterization of what I said. And so I actually, I've, I've had, I've had uh, what would you say, very reasonable communications with Dr. Strang in the past. So I sent him an email basically saying, look, I, I saw that you were ambushed. I didn't say it that way. I'd love to talk to you. Here's my cell number. So I, I reached out. Uh, I later that day saw his reply, which was uh, Milburn should stick to emergency medicine and I'll take care of public health and basically accused me of not 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 being qualified to speak because I wasn't an expert like him. Um, so I didn't get a reply back from the email. So as I described it, I felt the icy winds blowing. And on the Tuesday morning, I got a call while I was at work from Dr. Don Bryan, the head of the Eastern Zone, who we had a long conversation. He explained to me that I had created vaccine hesitancy, that I, as head of Emerge, it wasn't appropriate for me to ever criticize public health, um, that, um, it, you know, I had sort of undermined the NSHA and I was told that I would be, that I was no longer head of Emerge as of that point. Um, I asked Dr. Brian, the one thing I asked him, we, we, he and I have, have been colleagues for years. I said, I'm fine with all that. If that's your decision, I obviously can't argue it, but please put this all in a memo, what you've told me. Uh, please be public with it. I am going to be asked why I was fired. I would like you guys to state why I was fired because you're the ones firing me. Um, a, more than a week went by. I f- think he probably went to the lawyers of the NSHA and what the statement that came out said, Dr. Milburn is no longer head of Emerge. Thanks very much for your service. So they never publicly said all of the things that Dr. Bryan told me in a 25, 30 minute conversation, creating vaccine hesitancy, et cetera, et cetera. All the reasons I was fired, they would not put in writing. Is, are you, do you have any awareness of any record of that conversation? No, uh, I had, like I say, a long uh, time. I actually worked in the same office as Dr. Bryan in part, part of my work. We had a great, uh, we had a great relationship for many years. So I trusted him. I, you know, looking back at it, I guess you should always record these things, trust no one. Uh, but I kind of, ex- I, I really innocently thought that he would actually be honest and open and actually say what he's told me publicly. And I was very wrong. So uh, I just want to unpack a little bit of what you said there. And, and what I'm hearing is that, um, you know, one of their concerns that was that you were promoting vaccine hesitancy. Was anything communicated to you with respect to what specific statement you made that could be construed as promoting vaccine hesitancy? Uh, yes, during the conversation. So one of the things that people should note and might be surprised, I'm vaccinated myself. Uh, I got to, I got the first two vaccines because we were told at that time, as a frontline staff, I work with the most critically ill 
and comorbid and elderly people there are in our community there. I'm face to face with them on a regular basis. I was told that by being vaccinated, I would, pre I would uh, prevent or at least greatly lower my odds of passing it on. So I was vaccinated myself. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a vaccinated anti-vaxxer. Um, but <laughs> the, um, the, in terms of promoting vaccine hesitancy, my, my great sin was in saying that this was a new vaccine and the, side effects, especially the long-term side effects, were not well spelled out. So we, by definition, we couldn't develop a risk-benefit ratio uh, to, because whenever I speak to a patient about getting any treatment, be it a vaccine or something else, I always talk about, here's, here's the benefits to you, here's the risks to you. The patient always makes the final decision, but I could say, based on this, I would recommend it or I wouldn't. I didn't have that information at that point. I couldn't advise somebody this vaccine is more benefit than risk to you. I only got it myself. I didn't know the risk benefit ratio, but I was willing to take the chance because I thought it would prevent me from passing it on to my patients. I did it as a safety thing for my patients, but I wouldn't have recommended it to anyone else at that point with the dearth of evidence. But that was what I did was I, uh, from the, Dr. Bryan's point of view, was I created vaccine hesitancy by daring to say that the vaccine might have side effects that we don't know about. Now, I understand from the commencement of your testimony that you've been involved, you've been a practicing physician for more than 20 years. Um, I understand from your testimony that uh, you have significant emergency room experience and you also advise that you had involvement in public health mm -hmm. or at least a, a, a strong interest in public health. Great interest for over 20 years, yep, and so involvement. Within the scope of your education, training, and experience, do you have any knowledge or is there or any um, perspective that you're aware of within the medical realm that that statement that we do not have long-term safety data was incorrect? It, it turns out it was very correct. The first data on myocarditis was coming out at that time, but it wasn't public. It turns out we've had, uh, I believe it's over 80 cases in Nova Scotia alone. That's the government data, not mine. Um, so, and, and, and now if you look at the Nova Scotia government website, they've admitted to a host of other side effects, which were not, uh, not apparent at that time and certainly not, uh, told to patients at that time when they were choosing to be vaccinated or, or, you know, being coerced to be vaccinated, they were not told about these potential side effects. So I stand by my statement. It's just become more and more true over time. So it was, was it your understanding at that time, uh, to put it directly, that you were stating an objective fact? It, it, yeah, it just, what I said, we don't know long-term side effects, was just a fact because that's just true with a new vaccine. It, it's not an opinion. It's not, that's Milburn's take on it. That is just uh, a fact like the, the sky is blue. So at any point during your career as an emergency physician or chief in Nova Scotia, did you ever sign any agreement or contract or were you ever told that there were restrictions on the opinions you could express either as a private citizen or within your capacity as a doctor? No, absolutely not. I was always, uh, I always <laughs> labored under the impression that I had the same rights to free speech as anyone else in Canada. Um, I was always extremely careful because I not only was on the issue panel, but I got interviewed about other things on the radio or in the newspaper. And I always made it, I always took great pains to say, this is my personal opinion. I'm not speaking for the health authority. I made that very clear. 
Um, so I, I, I never signed anything to say that I would agree to agree with all my colleagues or agree to agree with Dr. Strang or uh, not criticize um, my profession. A matter of fact, I think it's essential that we physicians do. Um, you know, I, I was very critical of my profession during the our, our complicity in the opioid crisis, and thank God we were allowed to speak out, and we've somewhat turned that around. Uh, it, it just it's just essential for docs to be able to speak out, and we have no absolutely. I never signed anything, was never told that I wasn't allowed to speak. Okay, and and from your earlier testimony, I understand that you had issued correspondence. Or I think, as you described it, you were seeking answers to the reasoning behind various policy decisions. Correct. Correct. Okay. And when you did that, um, did you did you express any of your personal concerns, whether whether in your capacity as a private citizen or as a medical professional? Did you express any concerns about the policies that were being implemented in Nova Scotia? Yeah, absolutely. So I had concerns, like I say, that the masking policy is uh, really uh, decreases job satisfaction. It makes retention difficult. Uh, the school closure policies are were very destructive for uh, children. Uh, I expressed these both to some degree publicly, but behind the scenes, I expressed these over, over and over numerous concerns I had. Okay. And was it your understanding that your termination was was specifically related to the comments you made on the uh, on on the uh, CBC program? It, it absolutely was. Dr. Bryan made that very clear to me on the call. That a matter of fact, I had had a very good performance review just several weeks before with Dr. Bryan, and then I appeared on the radio, and then I was told that because of what I said on the radio, I was being terminated. Okay. So prior to your termination, uh, after you had expressed concerns internally and ask questions about policies. Did any, anyone professionally ever approach you and suggest that those views were unacceptable, that you had unacceptable views? Uh, sorry, after I spoke out? No, or no. Before? But prior to your termination? No, no, no I was never, I, I definitely, uh, I, I understood that some doctors disagreed with me and some agreed with me, but I was never told that I wasn't allowed to have those views or not allowed to express them, no. So I guess what was was your first awareness uh, that your your uh, your your expressions were problematic at that termination meeting? Uh, yes, but I will say that you know I'm I'm far from innocent to these things. So I had watched the I knew the lay of the land. Um, I had watched other doctors be <clears throat> dragged through the mud and walk over the hot coals because of speaking out. With their views, so I knew when I said those views, I knew they were potentially uh, controversial and would potentially um, make some people angry at me. Did I expect to be fired as chief of VR? I did not. I didn't think it would go that far, uh, even though I knew that it would ruffle some feathers. Okay. Now, <clears throat> you indicated previously, and, and we didn't explore this, but you indicated that after your appearance on that particular CBC program in June of 2021. You had said that you had received supportive emails. Can you can you explain what you mean by that? Can you elaborate, please? Yeah, from the, from the, I was on the radio at seven thirty a.m. and by the time I first checked my well, I got started to get texts, and then by the time I first checked my email, a couple hours later, I had 
couple of dozen emails in my inbox. And within a, f- within a week, I, I had, I would say, at least a couple of hundred emails, um, people supporting me. Uh, when I, after I got fired and that came out, um, I know for a fact that uh, the NSHA and Dr. Bryan specifically received a lot of uh, angry emails uh, sort of supporting me and supporting my right for free speech. So I know, I know there was a lot of, uh, a lot of support on my side. There were, there were detractors too. A Twitter mob came after me and organized to launch a formal complaint about me. Um, that, that was all sort of public on Twitter. So there were, there were both sides, but I did receive a lot of support. A formal complaint on the basis of what? Um, it, that's all, you know, you can read about that on Twitter. I, for various reasons, I'm not allowed to talk about that, but you can you can see that okay. play out on Twitter. Yeah. So after you were terminated, do you uh, as as chief of emergency, do you ha- do you know if and when uh, that position has been filled? Uh, yeah, my my understanding the it was a very busy job. Uh, it was it, it, theoretically it was, I was paid as a point two position, but it was much more than that. So the job was there's two people filling that role now, one for one part of the zone, one for the other. Okay. So am I understanding correctly that your responsibilities were delegated to two of your colleagues? Correct. Not a new hire. Uh, not a new hire. Okay. And I believe you testified earlier this morning that in your capacity as an emergency room physician, you would treat, uh, or you could expect to treat approximately 150 patients per week. Was that that, That'd be a big week. That'd be sort of the maximum I'd see in a week, but yeah, average week would be definitely over a hundred. Yeah. Okay. Average over a hundred. And where are you practicing now and in what capacity? Uh, I am an old-fashioned rural family doctor now. I work in the small uh, village of Canso in a tiny hospital there, and I do everything from palliative care house calls to I mind the ER and whatever comes in, and I do family practice, and I take a mole off if you need it. So I'm, I'm an old-fashioned country doctor. I expect that community appreciates you. Um, so after leaving your previous role as an emergency room physician, wherein you would see between 100 and 150 patients per week, do you know uh, if and when the vacancy that that would have created has since been filled? Um. Well, Nova Scotia Health is constantly recruiting. Since since I left that position, I've had colleagues retire. I've had there's been new hires there. So the answer is like they don't specifically advertise my one position and try to fill that one position. It doesn't work that way. We have a sort of a stable of doctors. And when I when I stopped working in in at the regional site as an emerge doc, it just meant that you know twelve. 14 shifts per month were unfilled and the other docs had to step up and take more shifts on. So it, it made things busier for everyone else. And that does affect the overall picture because these are doctors who might have picked up shifts uh, that would have been empty in, an, or in a rural emerge, let's say, but now they're doing more shifts in Sydney. So it does have an impact on the overall lay of the land in terms of staffing. Yeah. Dr. Milburn, 
broadly speaking, what motivated you to come in and speak with us today as part of this process? Um, yeah, it, it, there's a whole there's a whole other side to COVID out there that has not being well represented in the mainstream media, in discussions, in uh, statements from our chief medical officers of health or our premiers. Uh, there's many, many Canadians who feel that these policies were overreach, uh, probably unconstitutional in many ways, and that they were destructive and harmful. That that side of the debate has not been well represented. And I just want to be a part of getting that message out there that there is another side. I don't think I'm always right. Uh, maybe I'm wrong on some things, but we, we have to have the debate. You know, um, uh, the science is, uh, the science is about debate and arguing and, uh, you know, uh, Einstein said science can only flourish in an atmosphere of free speech. So that that's why I'm here. Final question. Based on what you just said, as you've gone through this process, do you have uh, any awareness of or have you had involvement let me ask this another way. As you've gone through this process, are you aware of any like-minded physicians practicing in Nova Scotia who share the concerns that you expressed today? There are many. There's a saying, um, punish one, silence a thousand. And there are a lot of doctors behind the scenes, a lot of doctors and nurses who would love to speak out. Um, I know there's some doctors who wanted to testify here, but were still uncomfortable to do so. Um, doctors are kind of, uh, doctors and nurses were kind of held hostage because if we lose our, if we lose our position, it impacts, we can't care for our patients. And when it comes right down to it, doctors and nurses want to care for their patients. So the, this threat of job loss, uh, you know, or, or losing our licenses or whatnot is used. It, basically, our love of our patients and our, our desire to care is actually used against us here. And it works well. I can tell you there are many, many doctors who'd like to speak out, many, many nurses who'd like to speak out, many other healthcare workers, and, and they don't still don't feel comfortable, even though we're in 2023. Dr. Milburn, thank you for coming in and answering these questions thank today. Thanks for having me. Don't leave. I apologize, Dr. Milburn. I should have sworn you before you started this, but we can fix that now. Okay. I can assure you my wife swears at me enough. <laughs> Uh. 
Dr. Milburn, do you affirm that what you have told the Commission of Inquiry is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Absolutely. Thank you. And one final point. Um, we will, uh, for the, the Commission's consideration, as Dr. Milburn indicated, he's provided me with a copy of his CV. We will forward that to you for your consideration. And also two news articles, uh, uh, a CTV article, uh, Cape Breton doctor removed as head of emergency medicine for the Eastern Zone, and another article by Saltwire, Dr. Chris Milburn wants health authority to tell public reason for firing. Um, we will put those in for the, the commission's consideration, but they are a matter of public record. Thank you, Dr. Milburn. Dr. Mimble, I have two, I want to ask you two clarifying questions. The first one is about the uh, first impression or reading that you had about the potential risk associated with the vaccine, and yet that you decided to take the vaccine, considering that this could be the right thing to do, given that you were facing vulnerable people and didn't want to put them in danger. Mm -hmm. So my question is, you've been working in public health, so you probably have notion about the epidemiology and all of these mm -hmm. things that would actually support that kind of decision based on mm -hmm. anything you had available. So my question is, what was your assessment at the time mm -hmm. in terms of the potential for these vaccines to actually uh, benefit in stopping or reducing transmission? Um, I, I know, and I, so I'm not a vaccinologist, but I know enough about vaccines to know there's certain, vac there's certain uh, things like smallpox and measles which are, are, don't mutate. Uh, so the vaccines against them work very well. So we don't have smallpox now because we have a smallpox vaccine and we eliminated smallpox. There's other things like the flu. We've had flu shots for 25 years and we still have the flu. I knew that COVID fell more into the realm of, of the flu. Um, but I, I think at the time when the vaccines first came out, we were still learning a lot about COVID. So I wasn't sure, is this going to be more like measles or more like the flu? Uh, the initial data, which I now... Uh, I look at it a very different way. Let's say I don't trust it much, but the initial data seemed to say that it did decrease your odds of contracting COVID and therefore passing COVID on by by a lot. So I again I I had assessed my own risk by January of February of 2021 when I got vaccinated. I assessed my own risk as being low, so I didn't get vaccinated for me. I didn't think I needed it. I thought I would do fine with COVID being um, skinny and relatively healthy. But uh, I, I got it because I thought it would reduce the uh, the odds of passing it on. Obviously, that the data was very it, the data was in its infancy at that point, so I knew that that. I, that wasn't a sure thing, but I, I went into it knowing that. And I was fine with taking that risk on myself, but I was not fine with pushing that risk on anyone else. Okay, okay the other question is more on, I'm asking about your opinion. Uh, you, you mentioned that even today, in 2023, a lot of people in the, in the medical field uh, practicing in hospital and nurses and so on are still reluctant to raise any issue they might have about past or even current policies. Mm -hmm. uh, 
based on your experience in, in this area, what would be your best guess of why is it that people are still locking? What would it take to unlock <clears throat> so, their speak? Yes, in... Um I'm, I'm going to go by memory, but I believe it was in uh, 2021. Our, uh, every physician in Nova Scotia got an email from the college saying, your duty is to support all public health policies. Uh, it, so far, we have not had any problem with anti-maskers or anti-vaxxers. They actually use those words in the email to us. And we appreciate your compliance. And they talked about the need for unanimity. So... These, this, the, the college is the body that gives us our license or can take it away. Hmm. So it's not just physicians feeling like they might get in trouble. It's the college saying, you will agree with public health. You will be unanimous. You will not speak out against masks. You will not speak out against vaccines. So there's very good and, and logical reason. It's not just a feeling, but it's actually a dictum from from colleges that and that's happened across Canada it's not just in Nova Scotia so uh there's still a lot of fear out there and and as I say we're three years into this and there's many doctors who may share my opinions or either completely or at least some of them and would not be willing to go on the record with it I would say them the great majority are not willing to be on the record so if I understand what you're saying is that until such a time where the college of physicians would actually remove that kind of directive mm -hmm. people will maintain their silence correct and i'm actually I've, i'm actually uh in the process of kind of speaking with the college behind the scenes to say I, i think they should walk back some of that now for instance the cochrane collaboration has said that masks do not work mass policies do not work are we now allowed to criticize them given that the cochrane collaboration has said they don't work are we allowed to state that and so I, i'm pushing back but i think i do think we need to uh, uh yeah we we need to keep working on this because physicians are still in fear of speaking their opinion yeah thank you Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me okay? My name is Nicole Snow, and I'm an injury and insurance lawyer with McGilvery Law. And I am honored and very happy to be a part of this process. Thank you for being here. We're just waiting for the witness who's virtual. Can you get him up here? Can you get him up here? Good morning, Dr. McCullough. Good morning. Can you hear me okay? Uh, not well, so we're going to work with that. You're... <coughs> So we'll keep going here, Dr. McCullough, so they can sort out the uh, the sound. I, I can hear you. I'm, it's just it's not projecting that well. My okay, name is Nicole. I am until top of the hour. 
Okay, yes, no problem at all. And I do apologize for being late. We're running a little bit late. We had some technical issues. So we're going to move through, and I'll have you out here by the top of the hour. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Dr. McCullough, um, we know... Oh, okay, yeah. We're going to, we're going to uh, put you under oath. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. Do you, do you affirm to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in your testimony? Yes, I do. Thank you. Dr. McCullough, we know you're a cardiologist, an internist, an epidemiologist. Could you start by giving a summary of your um, uh, qualifications and experience? I'll do so quickly. Uh, I'm in practice in Dallas, Texas, in internal medicine and cardiology. I hold degrees from Baylor University, the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School, uh, University of Michigan School of Public Health, and Southern Methodist University Graduate School. Uh, I've been in practice now uh, for, uh, for greater than four decades, and uh, I have published extensively on the interface between heart and kidney disease in the last three years, have directed my clinical and research focus on COVID-19. I have over 60 peer-reviewed papers on SARS-CoV-2 infection, COVID-19 illness, and I've commented extensively uh, in the U.S. Senate, multiple state senates, as well as in the media. Thank you. And uh, Dr. McCullough, do you also have a clinical practice whereby you've had opportunity to treat COVID-19 or vaccine patients? Yes. Okay, I want to turn to SARS-CoV-2, Dr. McCullough. The government of Canada determined in the early stages of the COVID crisis, so in and around early March 2020, that the virus was highly transmissible and a virulent pathogen with an approximate 1% fatality rate for which there was no natural immunity and no effective antivirals. Can you comment on those conclusions? Uh, I disagree with those. Uh, the SARS-CoV-2 infection uh, was one that was early on well-characterized. Uh, it was... Uh, highly uh, transmissible from symptomatic person to susceptible person. It had an overall case fatality rate far less than 1% available uh, to risk stratification. So the elderly, those with multiple risk factors at risk for death. And uh, we knew early on that the virus was amenable to uh, antivirals and more importantly, uh, use of drugs to reduce inflammation and thrombosis. So. Um, within a few months of the onset of the pandemic, myself and researchers uh, had already synthesized and then uh, quickly published the first uh, peer-reviewed paper describing uh, the, the treatment of SARS-CoV-2 infection at home to reduce the risk of hospitalization and death, and that was ultimately well-supported over the next few months with multiple comparative studies. Thank you. What do we know about the virulence of the virus now, Dr. McCullough? It's greatly reduced uh, with the continued progression of mutations to the Omicron and the subvariants. Dr. McCullough, Canadians were advised that until a vaccine was created, that the only available interventions were non-pharmaceutical measures to reduce transmission in the population, such as frequency of contact reduction, such as isolation, as well as transmission prob probability reducing measures such as social distancing, hand washing, mask wearing, and so forth. Can you comment on the assertion that these were the only available measures prior to the vaccine rollout? Yeah, I, I disagree with that. Uh, before the vaccine rollout, uh, we had uh, dozens of 
peer-reviewed manuscripts, comparative studies that sequence multi-drug therapy for the acutely ill worked to reduce the risk of hospitalization and death. And just shortly after 2021, we had a breakthrough paper showing that virucidal nasal sprays and, uh, and gargles uh, markedly reduced PCR positivity and reduced the risk for hospitalization and death. Uh, uh, there were no published studies at any time showing that uh, public masking, uh, social distancing, uh, hand sanitizers, or locking down those people without the illness had any impact on the pandemic. And Dr. McCullough, is there any real scientific logic to social distancing and masking and lockdowns in the context of this virus? Not among well people. So there were no data suggesting that somebody perfectly well could uh, uh, transmit the disease and make somebody symptomatic uh, who was adjacent to them. So the only thing that uh, clinically was practical is somebody acutely ill with the characteristic signs and symptoms to keep distance from others. So the only people who needed to go into quarantine were those acutely ill with SARS-CoV-2, not the universe of people without the illness. Dr. McCullough, I know that you and a, and a group of doctors had did some early research on um, the uh, COVID in the early stages, treatment of COVID in the early stages. You touched on that a bit earlier. Can you speak about your findings in a bit more detail and how those findings were received once published? The very first paper published on sequence multidrug therapy for COVID-19 in the American Journal of Medicine, August 7, 2020, myself as the first author, uh, was uh, widely applauded. Uh, it's still the most frequently read uh, paper from the American Journal of Medicine over the last three years. It's listed as a top uh, paper of interest. It received multiple letters of of, to the editor as interest with replies, and it became the base standard of the Association of American Physician and Surgeons Home Treatment Guide uh, in October of 2020. So uh, it was a breakthrough piece of information, a breakthrough paper, and it was followed up in uh, December of 2020 uh, in a um, updated protocol, which included now more uh, more drugs available to you because in uh, in reviews in cardiovascular medicine in December of uh, 2020. Thank you. I want to turn your attention now to the COVID injection. It is sometimes, well, it's most often called a vaccine. It's sometimes called gene therapy. Are you able to speak to just what the injection is and how it operates? In the United States, 92% of those who've received a COVID vaccine, and I'll just use the word vaccine, have received messenger RNA vaccines. And uh, the messenger RNA vaccines, uh, in my interpretation, are uh, synthetic genetic materials, a genetic uh, code uh, with uh, a three prime and five prime synthetic nucleoside analog caps, which make the messenger RNA essentially indestructible. They are loaded on lipid nanoparticles to provide distribution throughout the body, including uh, the brain, the heart, the adrenal glands, reproductive organs, uh, all the critical organs in the body. Messenger RNA has been demonstrated to be circulatory in the bloodstream for uh, at least 28 days. Uh, we know that it, it codes for the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2. The spike protein was engineered by the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and published by Menacherian colleagues in 2015. This work was done in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, Biosecurity Annex Level 4. 
So this messenger RNA that people have received codes for the uh, lethal part of the virus. And then once the messenger RNA is in the body, there is an uncontrolled production of the spike protein in terms of quantity and duration. The spike protein is proven in over a thousand peer-reviewed papers to cause damage to the brain, the heart, the blood vessels, cause blood clotting, and cause immunologic problems in the bone marrow. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. So it sounds like then that the COVID injection doesn't operate like a true vaccine. Is that correct? The, the, um, the messenger RNA vaccines uh, harness the body's own genetic material to produce the spike protein. And the spike protein causes damage to the body, as I've described. Now, the aspiration I anticipate was that the spike protein would induce immunity. Uh, but we understood very quickly that uh, there was no effective immunity from the vaccines. Uh, so within uh, 90 days of release of the Pfizer vaccine in the Pfizer post-marketing uh, data, which they kept as regulatory documents, and they were released under court order uh, to the public, uh, Pfizer had rec re recorded dozens of fatalities due to COVID in people who were fully vaccinated with the, the product. And sadly, Pfizer recorded 1,223 deaths directly attributable to the vaccine. Dr. McCullough, are you able to speak on the research and development process for this product? In other words, did it follow established regulatory standards for vaccines? In a paper by Lalani and colleagues uh, in the British Medical Journal in the last month, uh, the description of messenger RNA development is laid out in a timeline since 1985. So the United States has had a long-standing interest in the development of messenger RNA. And then in 2012, DARPA, the research division of the U.S. military, uh, uh, it created a program called the ADEPT P3 program. And it's on their website even today, stating that the military had a desire to use messenger RNA to end pandemics within 60 days. So the United States made an unprecedented government investment of messenger RNA. Um, however, uh, human studies uh, were uh, never performed uh, in, until we uh, had a condensed, rushed um, production of the, uh, the vaccines for COVID-19 in Operation Warp Speed. So it had a very long development cycle. Uh, there were many issues to tackle, and then it was in a condensed set of prospective randomized trials in order to gain emergency use authorized approval. Did safety and efficacy have to be proven in the production of the product? Safety and efficacy always have to be proven. So with genetic products, the safety uh, by regulatory standards takes a five-year timeline. So the safety study should have been started way in advance since the United States has been working on this since 1985 and they simply weren't done. Efficacy had to be proved for the outcome of hospitalization and death. And hospitalization and death was never a primary or secondary endpoint of any trial. And so there can be no claims that the vaccines reduced hospitalization and deaths since they weren't assessed in these trials where recorded there was no reduction in hospitalization and death. In fact, deaths were more frequent in those who took a vaccine. And in the United States, the consent form doesn't make the claim that the vaccines reduce hospitalization and death. I want to turn your attention to the vaccine event recording systems, Dr. McCullough. 
I know in the U.S. where you are, there's the VAERS system. In Canada, we have CAFIS. It's the Canadian Adverse Events Following Immunization Surveillance System. There's the yellow card system uh, in the U.K. and the European uh, Safety Monitoring System. These systems have been in place for decades, as I understand it, at least in Canada. CAFIS has been in place since 1987. Can you speak about what, if any, unusual findings are showing up in these vaccine reporting systems following the rollout of the COVID injection? On June 11, 2022, the World Council for Health summarized those safety data systems, 39 total, but four major ones, including VAERS, Yellow Card, the EUGIS system, and the WHO VigiSafe system, all of them have been recording record numbers of injuries, disabilities, and deaths. For example, in the U.S. VAERS system, all vaccines combined and accumulating all injections before COVID, uh, a child would receive greater than 70 injections over the course of childhood per American child. And we knew 98% of Americans were taking vaccines at this level. Uh, there was a total on average of 158 deaths per year in this entire data system, which is fast. With COVID-19 vaccines, as we sit here today, as of March 3rd, 2023, for U.S. domestic cases only, VAERS has recorded 17,071 deaths that have occurred within a few days of taking the COVID-19 vaccines and 16,454 permanently disabled Americans. The VAERS reports are largely done by doctors, nurses, and and, and those caring for patients where they believe the vaccine is the cause of the injury or death. Dr. McCullough, is there an accepted percentage of adverse events that are considered medically tolerable, if you will, beyond which the product will be removed from the market for safety concerns? I've chaired over two dozen data safety monitoring boards as the, uh, as the head of the board or a member, including those for the NIH, uh, BARDA, the, the military research division of the NIH, as well as uh, pharmaceutical companies, in vitro diagnostic companies. And it's my testimony that 5, 10, 15, no more than 50 deaths, even for the large, largest program, would ever be tolerable. That programs would be shut down uh, and then a, a deep dive on safety to figure out why people are dying after taking an injection. So uh, it's my testimony that knowing what we know with uh, the rollout of Pfizer in the United States, which started December 10th, 2020, Pfizer should have been pulled off the market before the end of January of 2021 with fewer than 27 million Americans being injected. Uh, Moderna uh, probably should never have rolled out. And if it rolled out, it would have been pulled off the market shortly afterwards. Janssen, uh, again, should have never had market entry because Pfizer and the entire product line would be off the market because uh, there would be a, a understanding that the spike protein being produced uh, is lethal to the human body. Dr. McCullough, can you spoke a little bit on adverse events already, but um, would you speak in a little more detail on the cardio, uh, sorry, cardiovascular events that are medically known to be connected to these COVID vaccines? There's over 200 peer-reviewed papers published on cardiovascular syndromes directly attributed to COVID-19 vaccination and agreed to by regulatory authorities. One of them is myocarditis or heart inflammation. 
Two studies have indicated that 2.5% of people who take a vaccine uh, suffer heart damage. About half of them it's symptomatic, half of them it's not. Uh, the, the peak age is 18 to 24 years, 90, uh, 90% are men, 10% women. Uh, it's a skewed distribution with the tail up into the 60s and 70s. Uh, there have been fatal cases, autopsy proven by Verma, Choi, Patone, and Gill. And uh, it is conclusive that in a fraction of those who received the COVID-19 vaccine that heart inflammation or myocarditis is fatal, and the mechanism of death is sudden cardiac death, a sudden arrhythmic death, a young person collapsing and not being resuscitated uh, by CPR. This is now well described here in the peer-reviewed literature. An important paper by Yonker and colleagues in circulation from Harvard has shown in young uh, boys and girls hospitalized at Massachusetts General Hospital with myocarditis and about 90% acutely are hospitalized to uh, have recognized the symptoms, that those who are having myocarditis have uh, unopposed spike protein circulating in the body, damaging the heart. Those not affected with myocarditis actually have appropriate antibodies neutralizing the spike protein. So what I conclude is that unfortunately, the, 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 a small number of people uh, do, do produce spike protein that is not effectively neutralized by the antibodies. And so they have unabated heart damage. Uh, so myocarditis uh, is, is lethal. And, uh, and of course, uh, a, a single death in a young person is unacceptable because young people are not at risk for hospitalization and death with the virus. So it, it, the, the um, COVID-19 vaccines uh, should have always been contraindicated for young people not at risk for the, uh, for the illness. In addition to that, the vaccines cause a progression of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. They precipitate a coronary atherosclerotic plaque rupture and traditional plaque cardiac infarction. The uh, vaccines are proven to cause blood clots, both in arteries and in veins. And the US FDA has published on this uh, in a paper by Wu and colleagues have demonstrated thousands of Americans developing blood clots after COVID-19 vaccines, where the FDA agrees the vaccines cause the blood clots describing them going from the ankle to the hip. So very large blood clots in the venous system. In the Wu paper, 11% are fatal. Additionally, the COVID-19 uh, vaccines have been associated with a whole variety of other cardiovascular manifestations, including vasculitis, a problem of inflammation in the blood vessels uh, in the kidneys, in a paper in the journal, the American Society of Nephrology, Canny and colleagues describe the progression of the vasculitic uh, and, uh, and nephritic kidney disease uh, in those uh, worsening their chances of uh, survival uh, free of dialysis. And um, in summary, uh, the COVID-19 vaccines by the mechanism of myocarditis, progression of cardiovascular disease and blood clots are believed to be the cause of unknown death in any individual where the vaccine is known to be taken by that person. Thank you. Dr. McCullough, the Canadian government has maintained that the COVID vaccines are both safe and effective and continues to encourage Canadians to um, uh, take them, including children. 
to vaccinate and to booster. So given what you have had to say about COVID-19, its virulence, the vaccine, and the statistics on adverse events, what is your opinion on whether the vaccine is both safe and effective? But the decision on safe and effective is made by senior care doctors with medical authority. So I would have, and I do have medical authority over government officials in Canada. So it's my testimony today that the vaccines are neither safe nor effective. And that opinion has superiority and supersedes any government statement. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. Um, my last question is really just about corrective measures. A lot of people the world over have uh, taken the injections. What, if anything, can they do to help mitigate any damage that may have occurred in their bodies? Two points. One is the toxicity and the risk of death appears to be cumulative. So uh, the first point is take no more injections because the next one could be fatal or disabling. Second point is to be vigilant. Uh, that blood clots, heart damage, neurologic damage, uh, intracranial uh, hemorrhage, stroke, uh, all of these need to be clinically recognized and treated the best they can conventionally. Uh, none of the governments uh, have started uh, large research programs into vaccine injuries, disabilities, and death, and, and that, uh, that research is greatly needed. Very similar to uh, the tobacco settlement and the final recognition that tobacco causes disease uh, in the U.S. tobacco settlement, uh, much of the money uh, received by the tobacco industry had to be turned around into research in, uh, for doctors to learn how to treat patients. We'll need a similar uh, type of program with COVID-19 vaccine injuries. A paper by uh, Zogby and colleagues, a, a, rep a valid representative survey in the United States, showed that 15% of those who've taken a vaccine have some new medical illness, some new disease that we're, we're dealing with. Uh, I've covered just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the cardiovascular complications, uh, but they also span the fields of, of neuropsychiatric uh, problems, uh, autoimmune problems. And, uh, and so there's a great medical need to care for those individuals. And I would just say there's also an acute medical need, uh, even though very few people now are taking COVID-19 vaccines. This CDC vSafe data, which was released under court order, reveals seven to 8% of people who take a vaccine have to acutely go to the hospital and be hospitalized, the emergency room or urgent care center. So there's a great need to still manage the acute problems that develop within a few hours of taking the shot. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. Um, I thank you sincerely for giving evidence here at this inquiry today. Don't go away just yet. I'm leaving a, a few minutes here in case any of the commissioners would have questions for you. Hi, Dr. McCullough. Thank you very much. My name is Bernard Messim. I have some expertise in biotechnology and vaccine. So I've been following everything you've published and uh, said on many conferences. Uh, one of the things that really puzzles me is what's happening with all of the evidence that has been pouring for more than two years. What's happening that the medical establishment and all of the health institution are still promoting that kind of intervention. 
What, what in the United you... States, uh, yeah, in the United States, uh, the medical establishment, I think, has been greatly influenced by the COVID Community Core Program. The COVID Community Core Program, announced early in 2021, was over $13 billion that was sent out by the White House and the Department of Health and Human Services to a variety of health institutions, thousands of media outlets, Hollywood, pro sports teams, all to promote the vaccines. We know separately that Pfizer and Moderna contracted a public relations firm called Weber Shandwick. And Weber Shandwick initiated a corporate program called Plan VX. Plan VX promoted vaccine mandates within large companies. And then lastly, Weber Shandwick had an installed marketing unit within the CDC vaccine office. This has all been uncovered by Senator Rand Paul in October of 2022 and is publicly disclosed. Thank you. Okay, those are all the questions. Thank you so much, Dr. McCullough, for appearing here today. Dr. Phillips, do you affirm that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Thank you. Good morning, Dr. Phillips. You're joining us from Ontario? I am. Joining Ontario, yes. Thank you for being here to give testimony in this proceeding. Dr. Phillips, can you start by going over your uh, medical credentials? Yes, yeah, so uh, I, I graduated from Dalhousie uh, Medical School uh, in New Brunswick in 2016. Uh, after that, I, I did go to the University of Toronto, uh, where I completed uh, my two-year family medicine residency. And after that, uh, I entered into practice. All right, and, and can you give a little summary of where you were practicing? Sure. Yeah, like many new graduates, uh, I primarily worked uh, locums, which is basically filling in temporarily uh, at various locations, um, uh, as well as I had a, a weekly uh, addictions medicine practice uh, where I saw patients once a week in downtown Toronto uh, giving methadone and suboxone. Uh, but uh, as time went on over the last few years, uh, I did kind of narrow down the places where I was working doing eMERGE and family medicine uh, to Nipigon and Englehart, and then eventually I moved full-time to Englehart uh, at the beginning of 2021. Okay. And, and your locums were in the area of uh, family medicine and emergency medicine? or Yeah. Yes. Okay. And your practice in Nipigon um, was in the area of emergency department work or family? Uh, both, yeah. So comprehensive family, which is inpatients, uh, office-based family medicine, and emergency. Thank you. And Dr. Phillips, can you confirm that you sent me a copy of your CV? I did. All right. And the CV, for the record, is exhibit number TR001. Are you currently practicing, Dr. Phillips? No, I'm not. I'm currently, my, my medical license is suspended by the CPSO since May 3rd, 2022. Okay, and, and uh, why was your medical license suspended? Uh, so, uh, it was suspended 
primarily for holding a medical opinion that uh, is contrary to uh, the public health uh, directives and uh, some of the consequences of that. Um, uh, we'll get into some of those details later, but uh, yeah. that's essentially it. Okay, thank you. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. When was the suspension effective? Uh, May 3rd, 2022. Dr. Phillips, did you take the Hippocratic Oath, and what is that? I did take the Hippocratic Oath uh, as part of our, our ceremony at uh, Dalhousie Medicine. Um, it's, a, it's an oath, uh, basically, uh, that the medical profession has taken, uh, or, or some other oaths that, that uh, are also taken across the world, to, in order to uphold um, medical ethics uh, and to put the patient and our oath to the patient first above any other authority. Uh, so that the patient's interests are always the number one uh, uh, priority of, of doctors uh, in that doctor-patient relationship. And I'm sure you took that oath seriously. Do you know what the Declaration of Geneva is, Dr. Phillips? Yeah, so, um, so during the course of World War uh, Two, both in Germany and Japan um, and uh, many other places, there were atrocities committed by these regimes that were primarily carried out by doctors, physicians, physicians who were actually captured by a public health ethos, right, of, of believing they're doing what's best for the race, uh, for the Aryan race, as an example, in Germany, uh, um, and, or just following government directives or following orders. And so uh, after the doctor trials in Nuremberg in 1947, uh, Canada, among many other nations, signed on to the World Medical Association. And the World Medical Association came up with this oath uh, as a way to prevent those atrocities from happening again, so that doctors will not just uh, follow orders blindly, uh, but will put the rights of their patient first. And if I can, if I can quote, it's a, I won't do the whole thing, but just a few of these, which are, I think are very mm -hmm. relevant. Most, uh, half the medical schools in the U.S. Uh, make the oath of, of the Declaration of Geneva, and most of them in, in Europe. Um, I'll, have, I'll just pull a couple out of it here. Um, I solemnly pledge to dedicate my, my life to the service of humanity. I will respect the autonomy and dignity of my patient. Um, I will maintain the utmost respect for human life. Uh, and most pertinent, I think, here is I will not use my medical knowledge to violate human rights and civil liberties, even under threat. Okay. So that was Canada's signature. Thank you. And it sounds like those passages in particular resonated with you, Dr. Phillips, did they? Absolutely. So, Dr. Phillips, on April 30, 2021, the College um, College of Physicians and Surgeons Ontario issued a statement forbidding physicians from questioning or debating the official COVID-19 response measures in Ontario. What do you know about this, and can you explain, uh, give a little more detail on that? Yeah. Um, so, although the college was quietly coming after doctors for uh, having an opinion that goes contrary to the government narratives before this, uh, amazingly, the college came out and very explicitly forbid doctors from carrying out our, our oath uh, and scientific method uh, for patients. So, what they state in their me in their message that they just sent out as a tweet, it wasn't a policy, it wasn't a regulation, but they put this out uh, saying that. Uh, 
Physicians hold a unique position of trust within the public and have a professional responsibility to not communicate anti-vaccine, anti-masking, anti-distancing, and anti-lockdown statements and or promoting unsupported, unproven treatments for COVID-19. Um, uh, they, do, they go on to say uh, physicians who uh, put the public at risk may face an investigation by the CPSO and disciplinary action when warranted. Okay. Um, so this was this was shocking uh, to, to me and many others. Um, so uh, as a result, uh, I, I gathered together with a group of physicians um, and uh, we together created uh, Canadian Physicians for Science and Truth and made a declaration um, uh, asking and demanding for the CPSO to, to rescind their statement. Um, and and in, that, uh, in that declaration, which has um, uh, thousands of uh, signatories of the public, and uh, there's 700, uh, there's over 700 uh, signatories in the physician category. Although not all those are embedded, but there's definitely hundreds in there. Um, basically, saying that this this statement to follow this would be a violation of our uh, three things. So one is the scientific method, which requires uh, the advancement of the, of medicine requires that we have to challenge the status quo. We have to be able to speak freely and to debate things, and that means that requires us to be able to be wrong, right? Because otherwise, you can never um, you can uh, you can never uh, challenge things. The other one is our, our obligation to give evidence-based uh, medicine to our patients, and that means discussing the the, the the evidence. If the evidence says there's there's people are dying from this vaccine, that people are suffering severe adverse events, or that it's not effective. Those could be considered as anti-vaccine views, but they're true. And so we, we have an obligation as physicians, no matter what the college says, to, to give the truth to our patients as we see it. Uh, the third one um, is uh, our duty of informed consent. So in order for us to, to administer a vaccine uh, to, to somebody, they have the right to be informed of all of these things. But the fact that we don't have any long-term data, but the fact that patients have died from these vaccines um, and, and, and many others, including for, for lockdowns, for masking and others. Um, so without that, if doctors are muzzled, patients don't get informed consent and that is their right. And so uh, we uh, basically demanded uh, from the CPSO to rescind their statement, which they did not do. Okay. And uh, you, you mentioned this uh, group of physicians that got together and, and created this declaration. Do you happen to know the website? Uh, yes, uh, CanadianPhysicians.org, where you can see our declaration um, in its entirety and the signatories too. Thank you. <coughs> Dr. Phillips, where were you practicing in and around uh, the time of the pandemic, when the pandemic was declared? Uh, so, yeah, in the beginning of 2020, uh, I was uh, working between two sites. So I was living in downtown Toronto, and but working primarily in northern Ontario, flying and flying out to Nipigon and Anglehead. Okay. And um, your, your practice was uh, in hospital setting? Uh, hospital and, uh, and office based as well okay. in Nipigon. What measures were taken in, in your region with respect to the COVID crisis? So in the hospitals you're working in and, and et cetera. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there were a number there and they were changing all the time. Uh, but some of the most striking ones uh, were the switch from uh, in-person medical care to uh, phone-based care. 
in, in the medical community. That was throughout all of Ontario, uh, where patients could not see their doctor unless they, in very rare circumstances. So almost all medicine was done uh, just by phone, uh, where doctors were asking patients to uh, do their own physical examination, which they're not trained to do, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, basically doing guesswork, uh, okay. which uh, was, was quite concerning. Did that pose any other con- Sorry. Did that pose any other concerns for you? Uh, definitely. Uh, I, I mean, in the beginning, I, I, I was watching a lot of what the media was showing on and, and, um, Italy and New York. And so I, I, I was concerned that there was an extremely deadly virus coming around at that time. Uh, I don't believe that now. But, um, but at that time, I thought, maybe this is worth it, right? Maybe this is something we need to do because if, if everybody comes into the office and catches COVID, the, uh, the deadly form of COVID that I thought was coming, uh, then I thought it could be worth it. But um, but yeah, uh, th- that was kind of my main concern until later on when I started to see the real consequences of this shift. Um, and that's when um, I, I began to speak out. Okay, and what kind of con- consequences were you seeing in your practice? Yeah, so um, uh, I was seeing a few things. So one is some dev- like devastation to both the physical health and the mental health patients. Um, uh, to give you one example, uh, there was one patient who I saw in Emerge. Uh, over the last year, she was treated for back pain uh, over the phone, uh, to the, like severe back pain to the point that she was on opioids. And... Uh, she only came to see me and emerged by the time her pain was so bad she had to call an ambulance. And when I saw her and physically examined her, what she called back pain was actually a giant tumor. It was actually her liver was riddled, riddled with, with cancer. Um, and I was not the only example of this, this late presenting cancer of patients who were treated over the phone. If they were able to see their doctor in person, um, uh, that could have been caught much earlier and possibly treated. Uh, but by the time uh, I saw her, it was uh, it was metastatic. And I saw a number of patients like that. The other thing I saw that really concerned me um, was the mental health of patients. And while I did see an uptick in, in overdoses and um, in suicidality and depression uh, in eMERGE uh, in adults, what was most striking was the children. Uh, I've never seen so many suicidal children uh, as young as eight. Like, and uh, it's very rare for that to happen. But what I noticed in common thread, and that was uh, children during the height of lockdown when schools were closed, parents were told by, by uh, public health to keep their kids at home. No play dates, no play, no sports, nothing. And so these children were essentially locked up at home with no friends, no socialization. Uh, and that, I believe, is the, the, was the leading cause of the suicidality in children. Uh, which concerned me, and nobody was saying anything. In fact, what I found most concerning is that at that exact same time, the Ontario Medical Association, the Ontario Hospital Association, public health were, were saying, putting out advertisements saying, uh, Ontario's doctors are calling for stricter lockdowns to stop the spread of COVID. And I'm like, I, no, I'm not. I'm definitely not. Uh, and they didn't even send out a survey to ask uh, what my opinion was. And so that was what really led to me believing I, I needed to speak out here because there's no other side of the story that, that's getting heard with the exception of the very few physicians. Okay. And um, Dr. Phillips, you worked in a hospital setting and there was a lot of early concern that 
hospitals were going to be overrun by patients with COVID-19. What did you uh, observe with that respect? Yeah, so I, I, did, I did not see that at all. Quite the, quite the contrary. Um, uh, I saw, especially in the, in the beginning, a uh, uh, steep decline in, in the amount of patients who came in, especially in uh, early 2020. Um, that's, uh, uh, yeah, I thought it was kind of nice at the time, not knowing these harmful consequences, uh, because I was paid the same amount to do very little. Uh, but our, our emergency rooms were, were empty and there was very little COVID in our communities. Nevertheless, because of the, the media, uh, the people in our communities were still afraid and still reluctant to come in to seek care in the emergency department, which is uh, devastating for some people. Right. Have you had occasion to treat any patients that you believe were suffering from COVID-19? Uh, very few, uh, but yes, I did. Um, uh, we, we had a few uh, in, our, in our community. Uh, the COVID wave came later, mostly after I, I was no longer working at the hospital, but while we did have a few, I, I did treat one uh, while I was working in the hospital in Kirkland Lake. And can you uh, offer any details about that situation? Yeah, it was, I, in my opinion, it was a very disturbing story. Um, I was a middle, eight, like 50s, 60s woman uh, who uh, came in uh, diagnosed with COVID and she was short of breath and point she needed oxygen. Uh, and at that time, there was so much evidence. There were, there were um, study upon study. I think there were 30 to 40. Uh, when you bring those together, showed that showing that ivermectin uh, would reduce mortality by 50 to 70 percent. We have very few drugs that can do that. And so uh, when she came in and she was under my care, at that point I was working as a hospitalist on the floor in Kirkland Lake, uh, which is a, a sister hospital to mine in, in Englehart. Um, I uh, felt a duty to, to give her informed consent that, and to prescribe to her uh, ivermectin for, for the treatment of her, her, uh, of her COVID because um, she had a number of risk factors for severe disease or death. Uh, and so when I wrote that, uh, the pharmacist uh, reported me to the chief of staff. Uh, the chief of staff then ordered me to cancel that order for ivermectin, uh, including the, the zinc and vitamin D and other harmless vitamins that I also prescribed to her that we know uh, can be helpful. Uh, and he ordered me to uh, call the local ICU in Sudbury, well, the distant ICU in Sudbury, and get their uh, permission to um, to prescribe outside the guidelines, which require remdesivir, which is very harmful, uh, and uh, and others uh, such as steroids. Um, and they basically only allowed me to prescribe the steroids. So I gave her steroids, and uh, uh, but I, I was shocked that. Uh, this uh, chief of staff uh, ordered me to uh, cancel uh, life-saving treatment to this patient that in peer-reviewed research shows uh, reduces mortality. Approximately when was that? It was in, <laughs> this was in March of 2021. Okay. And I think you said that was March 2021 that that occurred? Yes. Yeah. Have you had occasion to prescribe ivermectin again or was that the end of your prescriptions for ivermectin uh yeah uh i, I mean I, I would have uh but again my, in my community there, there was very little covid and the, the ones that were there they were very mild like they didn't need to be hospitalized for the most part um 
I did prescribe ivermectin again to a patient who uh, had what I believe could have been a vaccine injury. Uh, she received a dose of the vaccine, and after that, was very, very not had nausea lasting for weeks, nausea, fatigue, muscle aches, um, and uh, so I did prescribe according to uh, the FLCCC protocol, um, uh, which was ivermectin, fluvoxin, and atorvastatin. Uh, which was successful. Uh, did resolve her symptoms, but uh, the pharmacist uh, reported me to the college, and uh, as a result of that, uh, the college did put a restriction on my license, uh, forbidding me from prescribing ivermectin, fluvoxamine, or atorvastatin um, for COVID, and uh, among other okay. things such as vaccine exemptions and mask exemptions. Okay, and we'll get into some of those details on on the charges in a moment. Um, I want to move into the post-vaccine period. So you've spoken about that a little bit. You had a patient that had a vaccine injury. Uh, the rollout of the vaccines was in, in and around early 2021. What, if any, protocols were put in place at, at, your, at the hospital you were working in with respect to monitoring vaccine effects? So, I mean, our hospital spoke nothing at all about monitoring vaccine effects, but we do have a legal obligation to report uh, adverse events. Some of the more serious ones were obligated to, and then other ones were kind of permitted to. Um, um, is it is uh, it a form that you complete, Dr. Phillips? Yeah, there's a form. So the CAFIS system basically uh, is very local in the sense that there's a form through Ontario Public Health uh, that we... Uh, fill out um, and send to our local public health officer who then in, is supposed to investigate and then pass the, the investigation on to Public Health Ontario. Okay. And then they're supposed to uh, amalgamate the data and pass it on to Health Canada. Okay. And you mentioned CAFIS, that's a Canadian Adverse Event Following Immunization Surveillance System. It's yes. a bit of a mouthful. Um, so the adverse event forms uh, that, that you uh, were just speaking about, those were the forms where, that the doctors would fill out in the hospital if they thought something was an, uh, a vaccine adverse event. Okay. Yes. And can you confirm that you gave me one of those blank forms? Yes. Okay. And that is marked as Exhibit TR-0001A. Uh, so TR-0001A is uh, the exhibit. It's the adverse event following immunization reporting form. <clears throat> and so, um, Dr. Phillips, as I understand the, the uh, evidence that you just gave, you would not be forwarding that form to the CAFIS system. You would be forwarding, forwarding it to a public health officer who would then determine whether it would be filed with CAFIS. Correct. Okay. Um, is vaccine aftermarket monitoring an expectation for physicians? It is supposed to be, yes. And for what reason? And, 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 yeah, um, we're actually obligated by law for certain, like severe ones, we're obligated to, to report these adverse events when we see them. Um, and then outside of that, there's kind of more of a permissive requirement. I think, in my opinion, it's an ethical requirement to pass on all adverse events that happen after these, especially in the context of... Um, uh, uh, an emergency use authorization, so something that's not fully tested, uh, but yet was rolled out early, uh, even more. We have a, an obligation, in my opinion, an ethical obligation to report all ever possible adverse events so that uh, the 
the CAFIS system will be able to detect possible harm and be able to withdraw the product if, they, if it's warranted. Okay, and so the purpose is to, to monitor the, the, the safety of the product and the effectiveness of the product. Is that, is that correct? Okay. Exactly. What kind of uh, events were physicians required to take note of according to the form, the adverse event so, form? Yeah, so it's, it's pretty broad on the form. I, I can't recall all of them off the top of my head, but um, uh, so... Well, how about yeah, this? So if, if you don't have the, I don't have it in front of me. Yeah, it's okay if you don't have it in front of you. It's marked as an exhibit in any event. Um, did you have any occasion to complete any of those adverse event forms? Yes. All right. Yes, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, so I can kind of go over. I did complete ten adverse event reports that I sent in. Uh, I'll give you kind of the basic details of these reports really quickly here. Um, uh, so, uh, all but one of them, as far as I know, were not submitted at court, and so nine of them were rejected, as far as I know. Um, so, the first one is uh, a person with nausea for two weeks uh, and vomiting, including uh, hematemesis or bloody vomiting. Uh, this uh, started four days after the second dose of uh, Moderna. The second one was uh, an, a new onset uh, severe uh, vertigo uh, and ringing in ears by diagnosis vestibular neuritis that uh, came up four weeks after uh, his Moderna shot. Uh, the third one was uh, sudden onset in a, a young woman, uh, sudden onset arm weakness uh, for four hours, uh, weakness in the arm and complete losses of like uh, or decrease of sensation entire half of her body. Uh, with persistent uh, 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 loss of sensation in fingers, um, uh, lasting hours to days. Uh, so in, in my opinion, it was uh, stroke until determined otherwise, so I started part of the stroke protocol. How many um, days post-vaccination was she? So, oh, sorry, this was nine days after uh, her Moderna shot. Mm -hmm. Um, the fourth one was an elderly woman with uh, severe delirium, a high fever, and left arm numbness uh, four hours after her Moderna shot lasting greater than 48 hours. That's the point I saw her. Uh, the fifth one was uh, a woman with, with dementia but was functional at home, uh, able to talk and walk. Uh, uh, but after her uh, dose, I'm not sure which vaccine it was, uh, she lost the ability, she slowly declined over the course of about two to three weeks uh, and lost the ability to communicate and, uh, and to walk as well. Um, the sixth one was uh, an older woman uh, who developed uh, uh, palpitations, so a heart issue, uh, possible arrhythmia uh, with severe hypertension. Uh, and that started uh, one week after her Moderna shot. Uh, the seventh one was... Uh, uh, a younger woman with uh, persistent numbness to the right uh, side of her forehead, so she lost sensation there entirely. No other symptoms, and really, but uh, but that started two hours after her Pfizer shot and then persisted. Uh, the eighth one was intermittent left, uh, so a, a man with intermittent left arm weakness. Uh, so he, his arm would become weak. He was dropping things. Was no longer able to work. Uh, that would happen three to five times a day. Um, uh, that started two days after his Pfizer shot, and two weeks later, 
so it's two week, two days after, and then persisted, um, and then two weeks later developed persistent daily headache, nausea, and vomiting. So it could have been something going on in his brain or others. I don't have the final diagnosis because um, as an emergency, we don't uh, follow our patients, but we pass them on to others. Uh, they're investigated. The ninth one was uh, a middle-aged woman uh, who tragically, um, 16 days after her Pfizer shot, uh, with no other health history, uh, uh, had a devastating bleed into her brain after her blood pressure surged uh, into the 200s. Um, uh, she lost the ability to talk and uh, and walk. She was found on the floor, um, which again was devastating. And the 10th one is the only one that I know was actually accepted as an adverse event, and that was uh, a severe rash on a woman's arm that came on eight days after the vaccine. That was kind of a ring-like rash that spread up above her shoulder and down below. Okay. And so, as as you've indicated, that tenth one where there was the, the rash on the arm uh, that was at the site of the vaccination, was it? Yeah, yeah. that's the only one that you know uh, definitively was accepted. Yeah. And um, were what happened with the rest of them? Did anyone contact you? Yeah. So I did. Uh, uh, I was contacted uh, by the public health officer. He sent me a letter after the first five. He told me that uh, none of these five meet their criteria for an adverse event, so they've all been rejected. And take note of that when I'm doing my reports. Um, uh, I send a note back to him uh, by fax, uh, uh, saying, asking for the details of why each one of these were reported. Do you need more information? I want to make sure they're not just rejected for a clerical reason. Uh, and I did not get a reply. Um, so I was very concerned about this. I was concerned that the public were not getting um, informed consent about these possible severe adverse events. Many of those may have been strokes. Um, and so uh, in order for us to have a safe vaccine safety system, they need to be able to get these reports to be able to know if, if a product needs to be pulled off. So I did go public. Um, I uh, did an interview with Rebel News where I spoke about these adverse events and the letter that uh, I got sent saying they're all getting rejected. And uh, uh, as a result, uh, that public health officer complained to the CPSO. And they're investigating me and I'm charged with professional misconduct for those nine uh, of the adverse events that uh, uh, were not accepted. They're calling it I'm being incompetent in filing adverse event reports. And they're saying I failed to meet the standard of practice in the profession. Okay, stunning. All right, Dr. Phillips, let's talk a little bit about your personal life outside of your clinical practice. You've, you've indicated that you were quite vocal about the concerns that you had that were going on inside your practice and in the hospital system. Can you speak a little bit about that? Um, like, my, like my Twitter the, Yeah, the, what, the, the, you indicated that you were quite vocal outside yes. of the hospital yeah. system. So if you could get into a little bit of, of um, and you also indicated the public health officer came after you when you yeah. were vocal. So maybe you could talk about that. Yeah, yeah so uh, so around that time, like I said, at the end of 2020, when I was seeing that those, those harms from the lockdowns and that the medical association asking us to, um, saying doctors are calling for harsher lockdown, that was the moment that I, I made the decision that I need, I need to speak out. Um, and so I got onto my Twitter account, and that's where I've done a lot of my speaking out about public health measures, about the science that public health isn't talking about, like vitamin D, exercise, things like that, other public health measures that are effective, and the ineffectiveness and harms of lockdowns and masking, 
uh, and of these vaccines. Um, so I spoke out on Twitter and I've done a number of alternative media um, interviews. Uh, and I even did a, a press conference with uh, Stick Derek Sloan on uh, Parliament Hill in June. Um, and for all of these, um, the, the, the college uh, opened up an investigation, the Section 75 investigation of here in Ontario, uh, and they uh, have charged me with professional misconduct and incompetence for my communications, saying that, uh, uh, again, like that statement before, that we're forbidden from saying anything that goes contrary to public health measures, um, and therefore uh, um, they've charged me with professional misconduct for all of it. Okay, and, and, and is that what led to the eventual license suspension? Yes. Uh, so all of these kind of these things combined. Um, uh, yeah, so for speaking, they, uh, they opened up a number of investigations that kind of pop, all piled on top of each other. Uh, essentially, the charges uh, are on my public speaking, uh, contrary to public health measures. Uh, they're charged me with professional misconduct for providing uh, prescriptions for ivermectin. Uh, for vitamin D, for zinc, uh, and uh, vitamin C. Um, they um, have charged me with professional misconduct for providing vaccine exemptions to patients uh, with, for either medical conditions or for uh, being coerced, as so many promoting their autonomy. Um, uh, they've charged me with uh, professional misconduct um, I think that's the majority of it, but they've, and there's a lot of side charges as well. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, as well as reporting all these adverse events. So they've, uh, I have those nine charges of professional misconduct, breach of my adverse event reports. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. And, um, I, I think you indicated some of this was also related to you writing exemptions and, and so forth. Okay, and was that in the context of of, your, of a family practice? Yeah, so some of it I did uh, privately, and then some of them I did in the emergency department. I had people coming to me uh, after they they saw me speaking publicly. They would come into the emergency department and ask um, for letters of support or for over notes, um, and uh, I gave that to them uh, either if they had a medical condition or, or sometimes uh, for patients who. Uh, were being coerced against their will, and they were under duress and couldn't get valid consent. And so I gave letters of support in those circumstances. Okay. And uh, it sounds as though, Dr. Phillips, that when you spoke out about your views um, with respect to your concerns with the protocols and so forth, were you somewhat under the microscope after that point? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> they, uh, um, they, any interview that I gave on media, every tweet that I've ever made, any anything I've ever said, um, uh, they have uh, reported and gotten transcripts up to, to use to prosecute me. Uh, one funny story I, I found about this: I, I spoke uh, in Toronto at the World um, uh, Freedom Rally, or uh, in I think it was in January, uh, and there's a whole crowd of people. Um, there at the rally, none of them are wearing masks at all, right? Because it's a freedom rally. <laughs> There's two people there coming in with masks with a, a microphone um, and uh, and a recorder, and they kind of came right up to me. There's the only two people in the whole place wearing masks. And uh, I later found out in my disclosure that uh, that was the college <laughs> actually coming to record my speech 
and okay. I have a transcript of it from uh, those two people at the, at the rally. Interesting. Yeah, yeah it's definitely under the microscope. Yeah. Okay. Is it fair to say that your actions and and um, uh, your your actions throughout the um, pandemic and your willingness to speak out is directly connected to your desire to uh, protect and and protect your pledge to your patients? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, what I'm most concerned about, and, and as a physician, uh, the way that I've always practiced medicine is that we're there as an advisor. We're there to, to share our medical knowledge to help patients make choices about their own health care. And I was so concerned about that the, this change in ethics in the medical community where coercion is normalized and where doctors participate in coercion um, in, in coercing patients into things. And I, I found it abhorrent, and that was what mostly led me to, to want to speak out to protect the rights of patients for their, for their wants, their desires, their uh, freedoms to be at the center of the, 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 the medical system and the doctor-patient relationship, yes. Thank you so much for offering your testimony here today, Dr. Phillips. There may be questions from the commissioners, so I'm going to ask you to hold on there. So hold on one moment. There may be questions. Yes. Uh, thank you, Dr. Phillips. I just have a few uh, questions following up on some of the things that you've spoken about today. Um, early in your testimony, you talked about there being a college statement um, that was issued forbidding doctors from communicating uh, anti-vax, anti-mask, anti-lockdown type positions. Is that something that we have in our evidence as an exhibit? And if not, is that something that we would be able to, to take a no, look at? No, but we may, w would you be able to provide anything like that, Dr. Phillips? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's it's still on their Twitter feed. It's on their, their website. They, they, they have not taken it down. Yeah, I can, I can, I can send it on. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, another thing you mentioned um, was about some of the early measures that were taken uh, early in the pandemic and the switch from in-person visits with doctors to phone-based appointments. And I'm just wondering if that was a requirement, a recommendation, or what was the, the impetus for that to happen on such a large scale? Yeah, it, it was essentially a requirement uh, put out there. Um, if not, it was like ev virtually everybody was doing this. Uh, and um, suggestions by the college, uh, we now know, are, are, are requirements. That you, if you treat a suggestion as a, uh, as a suggestion, you will be prosecuted. So, uh, so yeah, that's basically what happened. Uh, they did have exceptions where if, you're, if a child was to get a vaccine or if somebody... Uh, we're, we're supposed to basically talk to them first on the phone and then if required you bring them in for a physical examination so there were still physical examinations cut happening but it was drastically reduced and uh, uh, most doctors were depending on patients to kind of report their physical exam thank you uh, and the last question i had was around the public health officer investigation uh, that you talked about and um, I think you mentioned that it was after you had submitted your first five uh, reports that you received a call. Were you not contacted earlier than that as part of the investigation? No, I, I thought I would be. I thought they'd, they'd call me because like, I dictate a lot of my reports. So 
my reports. Uh, again, working in a merge, it's not the same as a family practice where you kind of have an ongoing relationship with a patient. Uh, when I s- work that day, I submit all of my reports and paperwork at the same time. So a lot of my reports are dictated and they're not kind of fully done yet. So I expected he would contact me back, ask me for more information, uh, or uh, ask me for my uh, dictated uh, reports from my uh, uh, eMERGE visit, and they didn't contact me at all, even after I requested him to contact me because uh, I was concerned about these rejections. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Be- based on your uh, assessment of the, I would say, state of the art in terms of evaluating whether a adverse event report is is serious or not what what was the protocol that was explained to doctor to guide them to fill out those reports did you have access to a specific protocol so i didn't know about the protocol until uh, after but in his letter he sent me the guidance document uh, for what the, the criteria Uh, they use to determine whether something qualifies for an adverse event or not. Uh, It is an extensive document, uh, but the number of uh, of adverse events they're looking for is very, uh, it's limited to kind of one and a half pages. For COVID specifically, it was about 10 uh, adverse events they would look at, and if it didn't fit in that category, it didn't count. But one example I liked for how arbitrary uh, a lot of these criteria were because I'll, I'll give you one example um, if if you um, administer a vaccine and a patient has syncope like they, they faint uh, it doesn't count at all unless they also have a, an injury so if they faint hit their head and have a bleed in the brain then that does count but again even in that circumstance it only counts if it happens in 30 within 30 minutes if that person faints at 31 minutes, and then they fall and have a bleeding to their brain, that report will be rejected. So they have very arbitrary, and for each category, they have arbitrary time requirements. Uh, and if it doesn't fall within those strict criteria, they're rejected. Um, and these came up, these were uh, developed uh, before the COVID vaccines, uh, before the Pfizer data uh, that came out in a post-marketing analysis, they were forced to release uh, under a, a, a FOIA request in the United States, showing like pages and pages of uh, adverse events of concern, right? So they had 10, just 10 on this form, uh, when there were hundreds to thousands that Pfizer notified and uh, and found were adverse events that we should be monitoring for. So um, my patients didn't fit in those category of those 10, therefore they were rejected. Uh, but we now know that even Pfizer themselves acknowledge a wide array of adverse events that my patients certainly would have uh, uh, been ex- uh, fitting into. Uh, based on your best assessment again, uh, what would you say about the so-called underreporting factor that in the States has been calibrated or has been assessed in the range of 40 to sometime up to 100. Some people say it's tenfold. What 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 would your be your your evaluation on that in your practice in Canada? Yeah, uh, I mean, if you look at what happened with me, uh, it shows you what happens when you report adverse events. So there's a number of things that happen. One, they often get rejected. Um, so you get pushback from public health themselves. 
The other one is I got reported to the college and I'm being prosecuted for reporting these adverse events. Even if my adverse events were wrong, even if they weren't adverse events, how does it make any sense that it's professional misconduct to report them? Um, so, so that people know that my, my case is very public. So I, I just use that as an example that doctors know there's consequences. So there's consequences on a number of levels from public health, from the colleges, their licenses at risk for reporting and within their hospitals as well. So, so doctors, besides their maybe internal biases, uh, even if they didn't have those biases, their license is at risk from reporting any adverse events. Of so, questions. Yeah, it's definitely yeah, underreported. Yeah, to answer the question, I have a couple of questions about the CAFIS system, and and for some people, uh, don't even understand what that system is. It's I, I, is it fair to say it's very similar to the VARES system in the United States? Uh, no, no, uh, no. Well, yeah, no. It's 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 it, it, it's it's the same idea, right? In the, in that it's uh, vaccine adverse event reporting, uh, but. Avers has problems with its transparency, but it is extremely transparent uh, um, uh, compared to our Canadian system. So you can go on the Avers and you can look at those reports. They're just de-identified. You can look at them. Uh, anybody can report to the Avers system, uh, not just your doctor. Uh, you can report it yourself, and, and they verify them to make sure that the lot numbers line up and the patient uh, to make sure that they're they're genuine. Um, but in Canada. It's completely uh, opaque. Uh, nobody knows who's reporting what. And there's multiple levels of censorship. So, so the doctor can choose not to report, um, even if the patient asks them to. Then even if the doctor does report, it goes to the local public health officer, who is the person tasked with promoting the vaccine and forcing people to get the vaccine. That's their role. Uh, so they have a major conflict of interest in investigating adverse events. Um, so they have the ability to reject it, uh, and and then they send it to Public Health Ontario, in, uh, who has the ability to amass the information and filter even more out, and then they report it to Health Canada. So it, there are so many layers for things to get um, uh, censored, uh, covered up, um, and I, I can tell you I got an email as part of my disclosure for my... Um, uh, uh, charges at the college that uh, the public health officer sent on june 11th to to the college saying that my batch of adverse event reports uh none of them were my 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 batch of adverse event reports were not submitted to public health ontario so yeah none of them as far as i know uh made it into the system uh to be able to be uh, reported to the safety system did did you know prior to submitting those reports, adverse events reports, that they were subject to censor? No, I did not know that. I didn't know much about the system. I learned it along the way. Um, have, you, have you had any of your colleagues indicate to you that they were hesitant in reporting to that system based on your experience? Yeah. Oh, based on my experience, yeah, when people heard what happened to me, that yes, I've, I've heard from some that said they wouldn't report. I'll, I'll mention one more thing that um, really I found disturbing to me uh, that influenced that for myself and some other doctors. And that was in that letter. And what I found out about that process is when the public health officer investigates, um, 
they uh, and they decide something is not an adverse event. They called up each and every one of those patients that I saw, told them it was not an adverse event, and told them that they're required to get their next dose. So, um, and that's documented in paper with every single one of them. Uh, so um, that I found very disturbing uh, because what I started to realize is that I'm actually putting my patients uh, in harm's way by reporting because they're going to be at risk of being gaslit in the sense that they're going to be told that this is not an adverse event because it doesn't meet these strict criteria and therefore they should get another dose of something that could have caused them severe harm. It's malpractice in my mind. If somebody had a reaction to Tylenol, we would put that in their chart and say, don't, don't take Tylenol. Uh, even if we we're wrong about it, we want to be cautious and say, okay, look, stay away from Tylenol. This caused your arm to go numb. Don't take another one. Um, but instead, when I report them, they're getting told to take another, and they're told it's not related. Um, and uh, it, I realized at some point it's actually harmful to patients to report this. Um, prior to the public health um, officer essentially making a medical determination with one of your patients, are you aware of uh, two parts of the question? First, did the public health officer in any instance actually bring the patient in for examination before making a recommendation to that patient? No, they called them up, but uh, there were no physical exams and documentation that I saw. Okay. And do you know anything at all, and this is perhaps a bit of a, a stretch of a question, but do you know anything of all about the public health officer's uh, clinical experience in treating patients? Uh, so in my area, he actually does. So he's a, he's a part-time uh, um, uh, family and emergency doctor, uh, and then part-time does uh, uh, um, the public health office. I think in the majority of places that are more populated, it's a full-time job. Uh, but uh, yeah, in my case, he does have uh, clinical experience. Okay. My, my last question on this is, is there... Is there any practical suggestions that you might make for the future in order to improve this system, the CAFIS system? Yeah, so um, there's a number of them. So I, I think we need to follow the VAERS uh, system where any reports that go into that system need to be available to the public with removal of identifying information. Uh, there should be a verification process, but it should be more around the details, right? The, name, age, date of birth, uh, the lot numbers, to make sure it's a genuine report, um, but then uh, don't censor it uh, um, uh, or keep it hidden. Uh, there needs to be a division of powers when it comes to investigating adverse events from vaccines um, and promoting vaccines. That's a major conflict of interest for the public health officer to be tasked with those same things. If you're pushing these vaccines on everybody, you're not going to want to see adverse events, right? You're not going to want to believe that you're pushing something that might be harmful to people. So you're going to be more likely to discount those adverse events. Um, so yeah, we, I think it needs to be transparent. And so they're submitted right away. The public needs to be able to submit them as well. If their doctor doesn't want to report it, patients should be able to report as well. Um, and we need cutoff criteria. After how many deaths are we going to tolerate before we pull something off the market? They pulled off um, uh, like treadmills after like four people just got injured, no deaths at all, pulled off the market immediately. 
breast uh, breast milk. I think one baby died from sorry uh, from baby formula. They pull it off the market immediately. At this point, there's tens of thousands of deaths, credible reports of deaths reported to the VAERS system, and it's still on the market. Not only on the market, but being forced on people. It's it's an atrocity, honestly. But we need that criteria. We need to be like after how many deaths? I would say five, five credible reports of death. Pull something off. Like we should not be giving this to the public. Maybe even five is too many. But right now, what's the point in reporting when we're like the, the criteria is already met? These things are deadly. They're dangerous. They kill people, including my own cousin. Um, autopsy confirmed, um, and uh, they're dangerous. Like so. The reporting system's useless unless you're going to act on. So we need to have laws in place that, after a certain criteria, a product needs to be pulled off the market to protect uh, public safety. Thank you. A quick question: Is it normal historically for pharmacists to resort or to report physicians when they prescribe medications for their patients? Uh, that's not normal. I've never experienced that before. Uh, pharmacists do have a role um, to um, to verify things and, and double check things, right? Because sometimes doctors do make mistakes, and that's legitimate. But in all of those circumstances, they call back the doctor and they ask you to clarify: Is this what you meant to prescribe? Is this the right dose? And, and they'll, uh, they'll they'll often catch things. But I've never seen where they go directly. They don't even call you and they directly report a prescription to the College of Physicians. That's new, I think. It's a snitch culture that's kind of developed over the course of COVID. Um, and it happened not just with the, the pharmacists for prescriptions for ivermectin, but it also happened with uh, 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 vaccine exemptions. So if you filled out an exemption, uh, a good chunk of the exemptions that I filled out were sent to the college from, uh, from employers as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's a cultural thing that's, that's happened. Uh, it's was seen in totalitarian regimes like Russia and Germany. Um, um, and it's part of the totalitarian spirit. My last question is if you had to do this all over again, would you do anything different? Yeah, I, I, I would, uh, there's a few things that I, I would have done differently. Essentially, no, like on, on all these things, reporting adverse events or other things. Maybe looking back now, seeing those patients uh, got called and told to get another shot, maybe I wouldn't have reported them as much, um, or I would have stopped earlier. Um, I would have still told the patients, like, look, uh, don't get this. But um, um, essentially, no. I think I, I made the, the decision that according to my conscience at the right time, and I learned so much along the way. So, of course, there's always things you would have done differently went forward but as far as providing uh treatment with ivermectin providing exemptions to people who are being coerced against their will into gene therapy uh for uh reporting adverse events and for speaking out to give people um the other side of the story the facts the scientific facts the the, the harms from lockdowns and other things i would totally do that again uh even knowing i would lose my license thank you dr phillips
Thank you, Dr. Phillips. Thank you. We wish you luck and speed with the resolution of your claim with the college. Uh, just two announces, uh, announcements. I misspoke earlier when I said that Christiane Grebe, the fifth commissioner, is a practicing lawyer in Alberta. She is not actually a practicing lawyer. She does, uh, she is an academic and she researches the history of law and history. Uh, so, having corrected that, also um, the gentleman near the back, I think, suggested uh, during break time, uh, suggested that um, the audience might be interested in uh, writing down questions for the consideration of commissioners, and uh, they could be passed up to the commissioners toward the end of the questioning of a witness, and we thought that was a great idea, and uh, so there's a pad and a pencil or a pen in the back. David is holding it up there. You can go to the back table and anything that you think should be uh, usefully asked that a witness can be, or at least it will be considered by the commissioners. Go ahead. Yes, uh, as I said earlier, Christiane Grebe, our fifth commissioner, is, uh, I misspoke earlier, she's not a practicing lawyer in Alberta, she's um, an academic and a researcher in history and law. And uh, so we have Kathy lined up, do we now? Yes. Coming. Yes, Kathy is a Newfoundlander and Labradorian, a fellow Newfoundlander and Labradorian. And we have actually corresponded and spoken in the past. So is Kathy there now? There we go. There's Kathy. Uh, how are you today, Kathy? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm well, thank you as well. It's a great room of people here who seem to be very interested and enthusiastic to hear all the evidence, including yours. So I'm going to ask you first, though, uh, do you affirm to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Thank you. Hi, Kathy. Hi. We meet again. Absolutely. Good. Before we start, though, I do really want to thank everybody involved with this and just giving everybody uh, you know, an opportunity to speak their experience and share what they've experienced throughout the past few years. It's it's been it's an honor to be able to speak here today. So thank you for that. Yeah, you're, you're very welcome, uh, Kathy. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself, Kathy. Uh, what do you do? So I'm an educator, and I say educator because I am a teacher by trade. But when I was I was working in the school system, but not as a classroom teacher. I was what was called a, a TLA, a teaching learning assistant. Um, so when all this happened, I was you know, full-time permanent. 
Um, I'm a mom. I have three kids, ages seven to 21. Um, I'm a big animal lover. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm just an average person. <laughs> Absolutely. So where do you teach, Kathy? And or do you still uh, work as a TLA now? or? Um, so uh, we were able to go back to work last June 1st, and I, and I did. And then I went back in the school year, starting in September. So I work with Newfoundland Labrador English School District. Um, and then I just got this other job opportunity, which I, I, I just thought I would explore. It was more money, and not that that's really the issue, but given the fact that I was unemployed for a number of months, our family was you know financially stretched. So I really had to explore this opportunity and, and see, but you know, my heart is still in education, and I, I do hope to go back at some point. Absolutely. Um, how long were you working as a TLA? Um, I mean, I've been in the school system with the NLESD since 2007, like as subs, sometimes replacements. And I, I've, I've moved in and out of doing different things. I, I've, but most, I've consistently worked with young people, like I worked with Choices for Youth in the past. So as a TLA in this permanent position, uh, that was, I guess this is my fifth year. 2019 is when I started. Okay, excellent. Um, what grades are you mainly involved with? My school is K to four. K to four, and the ages that will be that you typically teach will be. What are you involved with? Um, so the way with the, so the TLAs are like support. So we basically help the teachers. So I was most often with the the K to two. Okay, to two, excellent. So they're five to seven years old. Okay, so just yeah, just starting out in life, really. Yeah. Kathy, in your submission to the NCI, uh, you had stated that you were diagnosed with uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome. Yes. Uh, can you tell me more about that, please? So I was pretty, I am a Newfoundlander, but I was living in Ontario, and just prior, just after I moved back home to Newfoundland, I became ill with, um, I had pneumonia, and. I was experiencing really weird symptoms, like I had, uh, I was getting hives and and I weight weakness in my extremities, and just without sparing you all the details, so I ended up nobody really knew what was wrong with me. I went to her, my doctor was following me because the symptoms kept getting worse. And um, Remembrance Day weekend, um, after seeing another specialist on Friday, who kind of wrote it off as a flu. Um, on Sunday of Remembrance Day week, I think it was actually Remembrance Day, I, I woke up and I, I, I couldn't move my, like, it's hard to explain. Anyone who's had an epidural when given childbirth and you know, how heavy your limbs feel, that was a feeling that I had. And it was a struggle for me to walk and it was progressively getting worse. By the time I went to emerge, I could only get my hands up, like, to my head, sort of like this, but I, I couldn't comb my hair I couldn't brush my teeth and I was like okay this is not a flu so I went um and I saw a, a neurologist just so happened to be at emergency that day for something else and he came and saw me and decided that I had to stay for observation um after some tests it was determined that I had Guillain-Barre syndrome um I the first thing they did for me was put me on IVIG and it got worse. 
Um, I couldn't move my arms at all. Like, so it's, it's really weird with, with getting very, like, it's not like if you had a car accident and you're paralyzed, like you're paralyzed from the waist down and everything is numb. I, I couldn't move, but with help, I could get to like a seated position, but I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't go to the washroom myself. I couldn't feed myself. Um, my mom gave up her job and came to my bedside and she helped me actually. I mean, yes, I was in hospital, but she did all my primary care for me. Uh, I was a young mother at the time. Uh, my children, I only had two then, were uh, five and 18 months old. So after two weeks of being in the hospital, and I, I, I'm sorry I focus on this part so much. Oh, okay. What does that have to do? But it's just important for you to understand where I was coming from. So... Um, after two weeks of being in the hospital, it was, like I said, they treated me with IVIG first and it, it got worse. And then it was determined that I should have what was called plasma pharesis, where I had a line inserted in my jugular. Um, my blood was put through a centrifuge and all the bad plasma was, was taken out. And, and that went on for two weeks with the hopes of, of getting rid of all the, the plasma. So what happens with the brain immune system, I suppose, I mean, a doctor would better be able to explain it, but essentially what happens is your immune system is attacking your body. So my immune system was attacking the myelin sheaths around my nerves that was preventing my brain from communicating and, and doing certain things. I know of people who've been paralyzed to the point that they were on respirators. Thank God that did not happen to me. But I was, you know, essentially paralyzed from the I couldn't do anything for myself. I couldn't lift my arms. I couldn't feed myself. I couldn't comb my hair. I couldn't dress myself. I couldn't go to the bathroom without help. Um, you know, and so then once I was considered medically stable, I was moved into the Miller Center, which is a, a physical rehabilitation center in St. John's. Uh, a, lot, a lot of time you'll see stroke patients there. And so that I stayed there then um, for four weeks as an inpatient, I believe it was. It might have been six, but I, I, for sure it was four. Um, as an inpatient where I had intensive physiotherapy and occupational therapy to try to get myself back to where I was. Even though sometimes people are not lucky enough to get back to where they were and have long-term residual effects. But, you know, I was a mom and, you know, not being able to hug my children... <sighs> It was really hard. Like that was a thing that got me through. Was, you know, thinking about getting back to my kids. So after a lot of hard work, I, I used to be able to go home like on visits, like sometimes on the weekends, sometimes in the evening, just for a few hours. But on the weekends, there were certain stipulations that my family had to have, like there had to be a bed on the main floor. So I was allowed to go home for weekend visits to visit my kids. Um, you know, I remember one night sitting in a wheelchair and not be able to move, and my little 18-month-old just toddled around the floor, fell flat on her face, and you know, your instinct is to hug her, and, and, and you just can't move. And, and, you know, I had to sit there and just watch her cry while I summoned my mother-in-law to come pick her up and console her. So, you know, it was very surreal, a very traumatic experience for me, and as you can see, like, I can move. I'm back to normal. My neurologist, you know, said it was you know, it was pretty much miraculous that I, I gained the recovery level that I have, and I should be very grateful for that. Now, I do have residual effects. I do have these, I don't know how to describe them, they're like pins and needles in my extremities sometimes, but they're more intense than that. It's more like razors, and 
they just kind of come and go. And I do have a lot of tight muscles that I regularly have to get like massage therapy and stuff for, like in my legs and hips. Mm-hmm. Um, so after discussions with my neurologist, I mean, I have a letter that I submitted to you um, where he stated to my family doctor that I was advised for me not to get, and he specified vaccinations in the letter as uh, pneumococcal and influenza, which is really at that time the only respiratory type vaccinations that were available. But in our conversations and what I've reached, you know, he would discourage me against vaccination, period, unless the risk, you know, we have way to benefit sort of deal. So I've kind of lived my life for 15 years, not as an anti-vaxxer. Like I have three children. My children are all vaccinated. My pets are all vaccinated. I was not an anti-vaxxer. But just to give you a level of an idea of the kind of support I had for this, because um, since I recovered from Gillian Bray syndrome, we had the H1N1 epidemic, that outbreak. And, you know, my family doctor was a doctor I had with Gillian Bray syndrome. So I was her first Gillian Bray patient. And she always, always supported me with this. So the conversation around H1N1, I was a substitute teacher at the time. Classes were filled with sick children going home during the day and that sort of thing. She wanted me to get my children vaccinated and my husband vaccinated for what she considered herd immunity to protect me because I wasn't going to get vaccinated against H1N1. And that was, you know, that was what we determined together as a, as a team, you know, like, well, no, you can't be getting vaccinations. So, um, I typically, uh, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but I typically never got my children vaccinated for influenza. I really do believe when it comes to influenza, you know, healthy children should just deal with that growing up because part of building your immune system. And I, after some serious thought, I was like, okay, maybe I should have a lot of young people dying. So they did get vaccinated. But I, on the other hand, continued to teach out in the school system. So one night I get a phone call from my family doctor who was very concerned about me out there teaching and just said, you know, I've been thinking about you. I, I really, would you mind if I put a prescription of Tamiflu on, on the, at your pharmacy for you? Like, so that if you get any signs whatsoever of, of this H1N1 influenza that you go get it. That's kind. Now, I never needed it. Another example is um, I used to volunteer with therapy doc. Uh, so I volunteered at the Janeway here, which is a children's hospital, and I volunteered in seniors' homes. Now, you have to always get your tests. Uh, you have to do the tuberculosis test. You submit your vaccination record and that sort of thing and your MMR. My MMR comes back as inconclusive because I was born before 1982 when people um, – we only got one shot. Now, I could get another one, but they advised against it, okay? Um, even when it came to the tuberculosis test where they insert a little bit of the virus under your skin, again, they found the alternate blood test for me so I could go volunteer in these places. Now, if I, I don't remember exactly, but I believe I did have to sign a waiver for volunteering at these, but I was allowed to go. You know, I was allowed to go. So when it came to this vaccine, I was very vigilant I started, you know, listening to people, reading things as, as quickly as I could, um, just to see what this was about. Like I was, I was scared too in the beginning of COVID. Kathy, you I'm know, just, I'm just gonna. Yeah. Yeah, let me let me just uh, just quickly interrupt sure. you. Then you've got a wonderful flow going. I really appreciate the wealth of information you're providing us. I would just like to ask a couple of clarifying questions. Sure. When when what year did you originally? Uh, what's the original diagnosis of your um, Guillain-Barré syndrome? November 2006. So that was in 2006. And you said, you know, there was a neurologist there at the time that happened to be there. 
Did this neurologist, you know, uh, he said, and I do have a letter, and I will forward that to the commissioners as well for consideration, uh, the medical exemption and the medical recommendation, but the, the neurologist suggested to you in writing not to obtain, not to get any vaccines because of the potential hazards associated with that. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Um, now, you may not remember, remember the exact conversation that you had with your general practitioner uh, your family doctor um, in, in regards to the vaccine, specifically, let's say, to the COVID-19 vaccine. But can you surmise uh, potentially the, the conversation that you had with your, with your physician? So I grappled with getting this when I knew it was going to like possibly be mandated. I, I wasn't sure what to do. I mean, let me be clear. Like, I really did value uh, my family doctor. I felt I had a really good relationship with her. So I've called her just to talk this out with her, but her opinion, um, I mean, she didn't, in all fairness, she didn't push it on me, but it was not, but she didn't have the same or didn't express the same kind of concern she did, for example, when H1N1 happened. It was basically, well, this is what we're recommending, right. and we recommend everyone to get it. Okay. She didn't want to see me lose my job, so she did agree to write a letter for me again, which I've submitted as, yes. to you as well. Mm-hmm. Because what happened, so as I, you know, I listened to different um, sources of information, um, I, I, I've often followed the GDS, uh, CID, CIDP.org website. They had a whole section for um, people like myself who were feeling very survivors. Apparently, like in December of 2020, Dr. Fauci recommended against the vaccine for people who had, uh, who who were, uh, sorry, who were like survivors of getting a brace syndrome. And this organization actually wrote an open letter to Dr. Fauci asking that he reconsider that. There was a doctor on that website as well, Dr. Peter Donofrio, I believe his name was, he's chairman of the Global Medical Advisory Board. And I watched a video from him where he talked about how miraculous these vaccines were, 95% effective, no adverse effects. Um, um, so, I mean, you know, and then as time went on, and, and there was a news story that came out from Global News out west, I think it was dated June June 17th, of a gentleman who had gotten helium syndrome from the vaccine and was seeking compensation. And in that news article, there were, I think, 14 people identified in Canada who were after uh, suffering from helium syndrome as a result of the vaccination. Um, you know, I followed what was happening in the States. I followed people like uh, Dr. Peter McCullough, who spoke earlier, and Dr. Robert Malone and their concerns. And the more I had those concerns, and, and, and like I said, I had concerns anyway, just with vaccination. I've lived my life 15 years without that. Like, I always, you know, when there was outbreaks of anything at school, I, I just, you know, hand-washing, essentially, is what I did. Um, so when... Uh, our premier met with Francois Legault, who Quebec had already had the mandates. I felt, okay, that's exactly where we're going, and, and, we, and we did. Yes. I reached out to my union uh, in September 29th to express my concerns. At no point was I, what you call, angry. I, I wanted to change the conversation because I felt like this was just too black and white of an issue. Like, there are people, and not that my concern is any more than anyone else's concern. But um, I know there had to be people like me 
who had similar concerns, whether it was just because it was a new vaccine or they had something like blood clot issues or, you know, and, and you couldn't even have the conversation. So my doctor did write a letter for me, but in that same letter, she basically said that she confirmed my, my diagnosis, um, said that I was advised of the COVID vaccine benefits, and I declined because of the small chance of, uh, of relapse. And I, my, my neurologist told me that relapse, so the average population has like a one in 100,000, I think, chance of getting Guillain-Barre syndrome. Mine was now increased significantly because of having it again. It is still rare. Don't get me wrong. It's still rare, but it's there. And the way I also saw it too, I mean, my neurologist also emphasized the importance of being healthy, which I take my health very seriously now, as I, I mean, I suppose I always did on some level, but probably even more so now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not something I, I took lightly. And the way I see with a vaccine, why would I stimulate my immune system, which has already shown that it can turn on me on purpose? If I get a cold or pneumonia or something, I mean, I do my best to avoid that. I do my my, my best to avoid getting sick. I take my vitamins. I go, I exercise. I go outside. I wash my hands. I Kathy, do all those things. Kathy, it sounds like you're taking all the necessary precautions that, that are best for you to make sure that you're as, as protected as you can be. Uh, without taking a vaccine, and, and I hate to to interject, but we we are oh, running a little bit short on time. So I really appreciate your your story. I know you have so much to tell us, but unfortunately, we have unfortunately so such limited time. Uh, I just have you know really one, I guess one final question before I pass it on to the commissioners if they have any. But just you know briefly, um, how has this experience affected you know your financial situation uh, with your family? Because I believe there was an impact there too. Well, I was put on on paid leave. I went through the whole process with my union. Um, I was advised to seek exemption. That's not what I originally wanted. I wanted just to grieve the process in the beginning because I felt everyone should have a choice. Um, I applied for EI. I was denied. Um, I appealed it. It was denied. Um, On my ROE, it says that in the little note box that I was unvaccinated as per mandatory policy. I had no source of income. My elderly parents were on standby, ready to sell their house so I could lose mine. And, you know, it put a lot of stress in our house, obviously me not working. And my kids got to see me being stressed. I cried pretty much every day because it, it's just a disbelief. I, I would sit home and I was like, I can't go to work. Like, I'm not allowed to go to work. And, you know, even now, I still have trouble processing that. It is, like it is it, difficult to believe that you were, you know, even with a medical exemption, that your a record of employment, which will be an exhibit uh, for you, actually mentions in the comment section, a little quote, not vaccinated as for mandatory policy. Yeah. So, but uh, thank you. Yeah, sorry. I was just going to say, no, like, I did try all the regular ways to to have the conversation. I reached out to my union before the mandates. I reached out to local uh, radio talk show hosts. I reached out to politicians. I wrote an eight-page letter to our premier, and I got no response. Thank you very much, Kathy. I really appreciate your time. Um, Just if there are any questions from the commissioners, please. No? 
Okay, there, there are no questions. Kathy, once again, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time, and I wish you would have had more time to listen to, to more of what you have to say, but um, thank you very much. Next witness is Shelley Hipson. And uh, Shelley, I'd ask you to affirm that you intend to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Thank you. Good afternoon, Ms. Hipson. Good afternoon, Ms. Hipson. If you could uh, just uh, tell us what brings you here today. What role have you played in this uh, situation? Over the last two years, uh, I've been interested in finding out the truth from government. And in order to do that, there's a process called um, freedom of information. And online, you can pay $5 and request any record. And so I became kind of obsessed. I got lots and lots of records, um, 80 to 100 records trying to um, piece this all together. So just walk us through very briefly how you do that and what exactly you can ask for. Um, you can't ask a question or you can't ask for analyzed data. You have to ask for a specific a record. So you may ask for a record about um, vaccines and adverse reactions to the vaccines, um, hospitalizations, and you can ask it. There's the um, Department of Health and Wellness, and then there's the Nova Scotia Health Authority. So the department underneath that has a public health branch. That's where Dr. Robert Strang would be working. And then separate from that is the Nova Scotia Health Authority, which is a registered charity. And you're also able to do um, freedom of information requests to both of those entities. You've brought today hard copies of a selection of your, uh, we'll call them FOI pops, mm -hmm. just for ease of reference. Um, I take it these aren't all of them. Oh, heck no. <laughs> I've, got, I've got about four large, huge binders, so I was very kind to you guys. <laughs> You've got the mini version of some of the highlights, and I hope that it um, presents enough of the, the picture of, of what I've accumulated. And just to be very clear, every single document that we're going to be looking at today, the source is government. Yes, it's a government document. It's something that's come directly from those departments or the Nova Scotia Health Authority. And specifically, I think with the exception of maybe one or two pieces of paper, these are all specifically from the Nova Scotia government. Yes. All right. So we have divided for ease of reference for you explaining this to us, as well as for the commissioners, we've divided these um, FOI pops into basically three um, temporal periods. Mm -hmm. um, and so why don't you start uh, with describing what is the first sort of temporal period that we're dealing with? And then you could start walking us through the information that you've received. So what I wanted to start with is a foundation. And that foundation piece is in your binder. Um, and it's Nova Scotia Health Authority 082. And what that provides us, we go back to 2015. So 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, and 2021, um, what we're looking at are the ICUs. Um, the total ICUs um, throughout Nova Scotia is, um, it's, a, it's a big one like, like this. <laughs> 
um, if you want to follow along. So the um, Nova Scotia Health Authority um, ICUs and then Aberdeen Hospital, Cape Breton, Healthcare, Colchester, Cumberland, Dartmouth, QE2, South Shore, St. Margaret's, uh, Valley Regional, and Yarmouth Regional at the top. And this, this provides us with a, a scope, a context. So we can see from looking at this in 2020, if we go down to ICUs and hospitalizations, the total for 2020 was 7,306. Uh, 7,306 what? ICU hospitalizations. Okay. okay. We can also, if we go up to 2015 and look at the total ICUs in that first column, we can see that in 2020, it was actually the lowest number of ICUs since 2015 at the 7,306. Other years were 7,906, 8,300. You would have thought maybe a pandemic would have been in 2016 as that was the highest. 2017, 8,014. 2018, 8,005. 2019, 7,708. And we go down to 7,306 in 2020. And when we add those ICUs together for 2020, the 7306, and we, I've just added to July, for example, because I have other documents that go along with those, that timeline. There were 12,220 ICUs. Sorry. Tell us where you found the 12,000 number. It's the 7306 total for 2020. And then I've added January, February, March, April, May, June, July of 2021. Okay. I didn't include August and September for the, because other documents go along just to July, the end of July. Okay. And that totals 12,220. So if we can remember that number around 12,000 people went into ICU, um, for about a year and a half of the pandemic. Okay. So just to be clear, this, very large document. Essentially what it is, is the NSHA-082 was multiple pages and all you've done is tape them together so that it's visible all at once. Yes. Okay. Yes. We can also see in um, March 2021 that the, the number of ICU beds went from 121 to 117. So even in a in a pandemic, they were reducing the number of ICU beds. <clears throat> this happened throughout several hospitals. For example, um, that Cumberland went down to um, Cape Breton went down one. Aberdeen Hospital went down four. So it's interest, just interesting observation to me during a pandemic that there would be a decrease in hospitalizations overall. As well as a decrease in the number of ICU beds available. Yes. Right. Yeah. So that, that gives us, when somebody says, oh, there's, you know, four people in hospital, it kind of can give us a reference of, okay, yes, but there, there's a lot of beds there. <laughs> so it's a helpful, a helpful tool. 
Okay, and I just uh, to highlight the fact that you've put some yellow highlights, at least on my copy. Have you done that on the commissioner's copies? I sure hope so. Okay. That was my intention last night. Okay. <laughs> Trying so, to get them done. So. so those are not original to the documents, obviously. No, no, right? but no, they're not. No, right. but just to help people kind of see what I'm trying to do here. If we turn the page um, in your document, um, like everybody was hearing and being bombarded um, with the ICUs and the hospitalizations, I was curious what was really going on. So I did a freedom of information request. How many ICU hospitalizations were there each month for COVID-19 in 2020 and for each month up to including July? So when I did that, this is what I, I got back was this one. It's entitled COVID-19 ICU hospitalizations. And if we want to take a brief look at that, we can glance down again by hospital. And these are just your 10 ICU hospitals. So out of the 10, five of them had no ICU hospitalizations for a year and a half into the pandemic. Aberdeen, Cumberland, Shore Regional, St. Martha's, and Yarmouth had no ICU hospitalizations. If we look at the rest of them, they are less than five. With the exception, exception of, of the QE2. Right. Yes. On a couple of occasions. Yes. Okay. And when you say ICU hospitalizations, this is specifically referring to um, in the... COVID-19 units. Yes, this is COVID-19 ICU hospitalization. So when we look at the 12,220 ICUs that happened during that same period on the first that I gave you, there's another little sheet because I told them that I couldn't add these at the bottom. So there's another one. We can see that Aberdeen had zero, Cape Breton uh, Health Complex had 10, Colchester Regional had nine, Cumberland zero, Dartmouth five, QB2 74, South Shore zero, St. Martha zero, Valley Regional Hospital in Yarmouth, tw Valley Regional 12, and Yarmouth zero. When I work those out, basing it on the number of ICUs in this first one, they are all less than 1%. So COVID ICU hospitalizations were less than 1%. Okay, what's the next uh, document that you have here? So that de dealt with ICUs. The next one, I wanted to, well, I thought, well, if they're not in ICU. Maybe they're all in like general admissions. So I did a combination and that's um, Freedom of Information NSHA 2021-173. And that's a, quite a big long one. You're probably gonna have to stretch out here. But. Okay, the next one that I have, Oh, you've got a long one. Okay. Yeah. It should be in the yellow or the orange in the back. Okay. And just to give the audience sort of a visual as well, I've highlighted the yellow, which would be zero, <laughs> which would be zero um, hospitalizations and ICUs um, throughout Nova Scotia. 
Now, you don't mean over, you don't mean generally, you mean specifically, and I'm looking at this document reading it, you mean specifically COVID hospitalizations. COVID, sorry, yes. COVID ICUs and general hospitalizations, the vast majority, I was quite surprised, have, there's no one, there's no one there. There's, it's, it's pretty empty of, of COVID. It, it would appear that there's a number of spaces here that are um, blocked out with a section 20 sub 3 sub A cited. Yes. Anything less than five, they black, blank them out. They, they gave me the reason that I may be able, if it's one person, I may be able to figure who that person is. So it's to protect their privacy. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting. They black the moat, yeah, for their privacy. But anyway, <laughs> so, so that's what that is. It's still, they're still all less than five. Okay. Did you, have you provided the document where they've provided that explanation? Is that in the binder? Uh, it's in, yes, it's in one of the freedom of information responses. Okay. Okay. I did ask then for an update on this one. And if we turn the page, um, it's not always easy to get. Uh, the update, they wanted to charge me $2,190. So freedom of information sometimes is not free. <laughs> It, they may put stumbling blocks, I feel, in your way to be able to access that information. So okay. I just stuck that in. Let's just back up and, and yep. I want you to explain or just clarify that first NSHA 2021-173. What was the period over which you were seeking and obtained uh, this information? Over what period? That... That went from for the year 2020 and up till October 2021. So January 2020 to October 2021. To October 2021, yes. And when you asked for the update, what was the period that you sought in NSHA 2022-047 that was going to cost you $2,000? Uh, I asked for November, December, January, and February, so four months. And that was going to cost $2,000. Yes. Had they asked for any additional funds in the original NSHA-2021-173 to give you the same information for the period of um, a year and 10 months? No. So that no. would cost you $5. Yes. What ended up happening to your updated request? Um, I... I redid it and I broke it apart. So I do have it a little bit further on and it gives us an opportunity to compare what was happening, um, in 2020, 2021. And then, um, it shows something substantial, kind of significant, um, in the beginning of 2022. And I have that at the more towards the end. Okay. So the, um, just if we could, just to put some of this into our, situational context, this long document, which is related to NSHA 2021-173 and includes all of the COVID hospitalizations and ICU hospitalizations of January 2020 to October 2021, um, the vaccine began to be rolled out at the end of 2020, December 2020. Does that sound about right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And 
so far, it would appear looking at this, these numbers that they, they seem to remain consistent up until October 2021. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. So the next, um, the next FOI pop that you want to address is what? So I wanted to know if there was any difference, um, a comparison. So it's a comparison of deaths from diseases of the respiratory system from 2019 and comparing it to 2020. Um, because we were told, you know, there's so many COVID cases. What, what was really going on with all of the respiratory um, illnesses? And that is... Just so you know, that's this sheet here. So. And this is 2022-00455-SNSIS, standing for Service Nova Scotia and Internal Services, March 30th, 2022? Correct. Okay. Yes. So we have t- 2019, and we can see, we'll just scan right down. We've got influenza, 42. Pneumonia, 148. Other chronic um, pulmonary diseases, 496, et cetera. So it totals 895 for total disease deaths from diseases of the respiratory system. So 895. In 2019. In 2019. In 2020, if we scan down all of those as well, and that includes 66 of COVID-19, there's 827. So... 895 in 2019, 827 in 2020. It actually decreased by 68 during that period. Now, this particular graph, is this one that you produced? It's one that I produced. And the actual documents, I've um, put those in your binder, um, the hard copy um, data, and I've just put them into a graph so that we can compare what happened between between the two years. Okay, so you've done kind of a, a mini analysis, not really analysis, but you just reorganized the data, pulled the ones that were specifically respiratory, mm-hmm. um, and put it into this graph. Mm-hmm. But you've provided the actual FOIPOP where you sought records providing total number of deaths per month in Nova Scotia for 2019, 2021, and so far in 2022 as mm-hmm. of March 30th. Mm-hmm. And Records showing a breakdown with totals of causes of death for 19, 20, and 21. Mm-hmm. And what you were provided was um, had a lot of other causes of death as well. That, that's right. Okay. And yes. you've highlighted for the commissioners which ones you've used to put into your graph mm-hmm. so that if they wish to sort of double check your work or confirm those numbers, they can do that. That's right. Okay. Yes. And so this is over the period of, this is a comparison of 2019, which is pre-pandemic, and uh, the first year of the pandemic in 2020. That's right. 2021, I asked for it, but it was incomplete. So I wasn't able to use that data. All right. Would you like to move on to the next? Yes, please. So we are at 2021-01575-HEA. 
And the important thing here, I feel, if we just turn to the second page, it's page one, just after the um, foie pop. And I highlighted, I hope, in your binders, a deceased case. And I'm just going to read that out to you because it is quite concerning to me that this would be the definition. And let me just back up for everybody's benefit. We're talking about a FOI pop request made on December 15th, 2021. Mm -hmm. Or at least that's when the, is that when the response comes? That's when the response. I made it on August 19th, 2021. Okay. And this is what you had sought from the government. You had sought the definition of a COVID-19 case and a couple of definitions, including uh, what they, how they define a deceased case and so on. Exactly. Yes. Continue. Okay. So a deceased case, that's on page one, a probable, a probable or confirmed COVID-19 case whose death resulted from a clinically compatible illness. Unless there is a clear alternative cause of death identified, such as, example, trauma, poisoning, drug overdose. I'm going to read it again. A deceased case, a probable or confirmed COVID-19 case whose death resulted from a clinically compatible illness. Unless there is a clear alternative cause of death, trauma, poisoning, or drug overdose. A medical officer of health, relevant public health authority, a coroner, may use their discretion when determining if a death was due to COVID-19, and their judgment will supersede the above-mentioned criteria. A death due to COVID-19 may be attributed when COVID-19 is the cause of death or is a contributing factor. So a death can be attributed, a COVID-19 death may be attributed or is the cause of death. The public health authority or coroner may use their discretion and it can be from a clinically compatible illness. Okay. Page page four, table two, um, COVID-19 cases, it's just interesting to note that out of a total of 5,884 confirmed cases, one quarter of them were asymptomatic. And in Table 3, number of deaths of asymptomatic people are zero. I started to question the whole testing of asymptomatic people. Um, so it, it's interesting how many were had no symptoms, leading, if you don't have any questions there, I'm going to go right to the next. Okay. I I don't believe that I do. This this particular FOIPOP covers um, March, or that the graphs cover, it would appear, March 2020 to August 2021. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. And these graphs, just to just to clarify, because some of these graphs you've made, mm-hmm. these graphs are ones that were included in the response as they appear yes. from the government. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the next Freedom of Information is Nova Scotia Health Authority um, 2021-185. And what I asked was, any record, proof, document, report that an asymptomatic positive COVID-19 case is contagious and spread to others in Nova Scotia. 
The response is, we have conducted a thorough research, thorough search of our records, but we were not able to find any records responsive to your request. We are now closing the file. Okay, and that was in, uh, that was in December 7th of 2021. Mm -hmm. So that one seems to speak for itself. Yeah. Okay, the next document is a graph, mm -hmm. and I take it that, again, this is one that you produced. Is that right? Yes, it is. Okay, yeah. and just to um, highlight for the commissioners, the sources of your information of the numbers that you've put in here are entered on the sort of in the middle there where it says FOIPOP, and it provides a number. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And then the percentages are sort of, um, that's something that you did. That's my calculations, Based yes. on the numbers that are in the documents cited here. That's right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, can you just very quickly walk us through what this is? Okay, so I just wanted to put it in context. The population of Nova Scotia is just over a million people. In 2020, there was 238,474 tests done. And... In 2021, 1,347,912. That's totaling uh, just over 15,000 um, tests that were completed. Comparing that to our population, that's a substantial number of, of tests. Of course, there, there could be people that are retesting, but that's a lot of tests. The negative tests were 1,564,648. Mm -hmm. So out of all of those total tests for two years, 20,446 were positive. The number of people that died was 114. We know of those 114 in that first year, at least that 53 of them died at Northwood, a long-term care facility. Those are my percentages, so I'm just going to skip over those. Um, the number of people that die in Nova Scotia it's approximately 10,000 people a year. So 20,000 people died in those two years, and 114 of them were from COVID. Attributed to COVID. Attributed to COVID, yes. So it's a very low percentage, and which, tend, which kind of leads me into the next uh, freedom of information response, which would be about the um, comorbidities. 114 people died, at least 53 of them were in long-term care. So I wanted to know, okay, what else was going on? Why did they die? Like, to, in order for me to stay healthy and my grandmother to stay healthy. So the next one was uh, Freedom of Information. It's 2021-01142. And I asked for, I would like to learn the comorbidity data that the people had who died with or from COVID-19, including ages, sex, any information or studies that has been gathered on those who have died in Nova Scotia, COVID-19 in Nova Scotia. And the next one is, is this. And we can see that um, 70, in table one, 70, oh, 86.7% of them were 65 years and older, only 13.3% of them were under the age of 65. 
down in table three, um, we can see that cancers were 6.7, cardiac disorders 60%, chronic renal disease 11.1%, diabetes 21.1%, immunocompromised conditions 5.6%, neurological conditions 54.4%, and pulmonary disorders 18.9%. Um, and most of them were in long-term care. Right. So just to add context to that. Okay. I think now we're moving into the next um, temporal phase where we're talking about um, after the rollout of the vaccine. Um, we do need to pick up our pace a little bit mm -hmm. just to make sure that we get everything in. So okay. let's introduce your documents and the commissioners will be able to mostly um, consider the documents themselves. Mm -hmm. What's the first one speaking to? 2021-01590-HEA. Um, I'm going to, that's one of the first ones that I did that I learned about the, the um, adverse events following immunization. Okay. I, I'm going to leave that for them to read. Okay. Due to time. Yep. I'm going to skip to um, 2020 Okay. And in that uh, Freedom of Information request um, made on August 29th, 2022, I asked for correspondence, reports, documents given to, sent to, reported to, received by Dr. Robert Strang from doctors, pharmacies, medical officers, hospital administration, long-term care, nursing homes administration. On the topic of COVID-19, vaccine adverse events, side effects, and deaths that, ha that have occurred since it was rolled out in our province. This would include correspondence and reports on adverse events and deaths that are temporarily associated with, vac with vaccine that have not been clearly attributed to the cause, that, to other causes that Dr. Robert Strang has in his possession. So page one, it's Dr. Robert Strang. He's sending out... Um, references for communication. So we saw how um, across Canada, the medical, the chief medical officers seem to parrot a lot of lines. I can understand that now because it was included in this particular freedom of information um, response. So, so we see Dr. Bonnie Henry, Dina Henshaw, Teresa Tam all being included in this. Okay. And what this one is refers to media lines. Yes. So they're indicating how people should discuss this in the media. With the public, yes. Yeah. Is there anything to highlight there in particular or just that they all have the same media lines distributed yeah. to them? So on page five, January 21st, 2021, so that's only about a month after the rollout. Question three, can vaccinated people spread the virus to others? There is limited evidence on whether someone who received the vaccine is still able to spread the virus. So here we were told that it was safe and effective, but that clearly states there is limited evidence on whether someone who received the vaccine is still able to spread the virus. Everyone must continue following public health measures regarding, regardless of vaccination with COVID-19 vaccines to protect themselves, their loved ones, as well as people and to and communities at risk of more severe disease and outcomes of COVID-19. Um, on let's see. 
page 13 are emails, and they're emails to and from Robert Strang and their, their medical officers. Um, so the first one is, hi, Rob. Um, in case you receive any queries, I'm looking into an adverse event following immunization following the death of a resident vaccinated in long-term care, a female received a Moderna COVID-19 vaccine and died. So, so that's one. And I'm just going to kind of flip through them. Another one. Hi, everyone. Please be aware of an adverse event following immunization reported today and confirmed. And I'm not even going to try to pronounce that word. En but it's, Encephalopathy. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, develop neurological symptoms. Another one, um, a serious adverse event, uh, vaccine-induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia. Is that on page 16? That's on page 16, yes. Okay. So with that one, they choose to um, notify the premier's office. There's people that have um, adverse reactions, including swollen, tingly lips, uh, closure of the throat, and they are still recommended to proceed with their second dose of the vaccine. Can you pa cite page numbers? Page 19. So okay. Sorry, page 19. On page 24, it's just interesting. Some adverse events are identified during the clinical trial process. However, new issues can arise once a health product is on the market because it is being used by a much larger number of people. Very much larger. Um, page 27, again, just itchiness and Shelley swollen throat um, after a Pfizer shot. Shelley McNeil is going to assess the situation. And um, this is after the second dose, actually. And they, of course, I mean, they were allergic to the first one. No big surprise. Immediately experienced headache, itchiness, flush. So the second one, the same type of reaction. Page 29, some unusual adverse events following immunization came in today. Stroke, thrombotic events, um, thrombocytopenia alone thrombosis, thrombocytopenia. So they knew, this was in the first few months, um, that people were having these um, adverse reactions to the, to the vaccine. And I guess I should have been asking you for dates, but that most recent one that you just cited where there's stroke, thrombotic events, um, pulmonary embolism, uh, that was April 15th, 2021, for example. Yes. And the earlier, the earliest one that you cited was January 24th, 2021. So mm -hmm. um, those are all in between those dates. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on to the next set. Uh, 02124. I asked the same thing. And this is for a different time period. I take Different it. time period. I had to break that one down because I couldn't get it all at once. They were going to charge me some money. So I... I broke it up. Um, page one at the bottom, we can see allergic reactions, anaphylaxis to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, continuing on page two, eight people. Neurological reaction, female receives a Pfizer, excuse me, vaccine and has a seizure. Um, if we scan down some of those, there's pericarditis, hyperthyroidism, rashes, um, pulmonary embolisms, a male 
receives a Moderna shot, um, rash toes, then serious and hospitalized. There were six people, um, one, two, so a male gets Pfizer and has a cardiac arrhythmia, thrombotic stroke, pericarditis, ischemic stroke, ischemic stroke, hemorrhagic stroke. So I'm just going to stop you. So what's yeah. interesting about this set is that at this point in the in the in June, this is in June of 2021, mm-hmm. they're now breaking down their emails to Dr. Strang into uh, sort of five day increments. Yes. So the this particular email is addressing June 7th to 11th right. of 2021. Mm-hmm. They've got eight allergic reactions. Mm-hmm. They've got one neurological reaction. Eight that they consider non-serious, but it includes a pulmonary embolism, mm-hmm. as well as a vitreous detachment and pericarditis. Mm-hmm. And then they've got six serious hospitalized, which you've just read to us there, a couple of ischemic strokes, hemorrhagic strokes, pericarditis, thrombotic stroke, and so on, and a death, which appears was due to pulmonary embolism. Yes. That's all in a, in a five-day period? It's in a five. Okay. Yes. And Dr. Strang's uh, response was, will be interesting, so do we have serology for specific cases? Mm-hmm. So he responded to that, indicating he had seen it. Yes. Okay, so then moving on very quickly through the next It's the same sort one. of thing. Anaphylactics, um, allergies, uh, pericarditis. This is June 14th to 18th. Yes, June 14th to the, to the 18th. Seizures, stomach stroke again, pericarditis. Another um, pulmonary embolism, even things like colitis and allergies, um, another pulmonary embolism. So that's that date. And it, it just keeps going. Like they knew he was receiving these emails knowing that people were being seriously injured and dying and having strokes. Um, yet the, it was being told to us that it was safe, safe and effective. Page five, he has the word concerning. So just to back up, the yep. response to the June 14th to 18th email, that email was sent on June 18th at 6.14 p.m. And at the top of the page at 8.17 p.m., what was Dr. Strang's response on the top of page three? Uh, so we would have to acknowledge a singe case? Is that Sing- single case. Sing- oh, maybe. Sing- single case but with few details to due to privacy. Okay. And then, um, and on that particular date, they were reporting six allergic reactions, five they considered non-serious, but including pericarditis, tachycardia, and five serious hospitalized, including a bilateral pul- pulmonary embolism, uh, seizure and stroke in the same person. Uh, and on that particular date, no deaths were reported. Right. Um, and then, on the next page, number five, page five, uh, that email covered, that report covered, um, well, it's in a slightly different, uh, slightly different format. But on July 12th, um, Leslie Wynott sends an email, or sorry, Noella sends an email to Dr. Wynott. We have several myocarditis, pericarditis reports that we received today. This is the first one. Um, and following the email stre- thread up, um, what was Dr. Strang's response on page five? Just concerning. Concerning. It's concerning. This is all in June and July of 2021. Mm-hmm. And uh, the mandate and the 
vax pass were brought in in the fall of 2021 that's right okay there's several more pages of this but and is as interesting as it all is i think we should Mm -hmm. fast forward um and we will uh, put some electronic copies of all of these on uh, mm-hmm. we'll make them available to the commissioners as, and I'll speak to whoever might be able to put them on the uh, web as well yes um, okay what's the next one you've got two or three minutes okay um, I just want to highlight in 2022 uh, 1408 um, that they are not counting any of the deaths after 30 days so okay. we can see. Um, sort of a criteria that they have to follow. And so the, the, the criteria is very um, tight. Localized events, seven days. Allergic re- events, 48 hours. Neurological events, 56 days. And what I've noticed in the reply to my freedom of information request is that there are no adverse events being recorded after one month. So I don't know what people are seeing in their community, but I certainly have concerns of what's happening in mine. And it may take a little bit longer for blood clots to um, manifest into death. And they are not recording anything after one month. Okay. How about, I don't know how you feel about making the last one that we discussed, the comparison of the hospitalizations after the the, oh, the more recent yes. hospitalizations for COVID. Yeah. Um, I think that's the one in your red folder at the back, but I'm not sure. I think it is. Yeah. 161. Yes. NSHA 2022-161. So if we pull out that. So we've gone from basically zeros. um, And I, did I write it on my copy? Did I write it on your copy? Probably. (laughs) Is it 5,000? 5,972 general admissions for COVID. Over what period? Over from, it's just January to October 2022. Okay. So we've gone from nothing, zeros, um, to a substantial increase to a general hospitalizations that are happening specifically for covid specifically as, for covid as attributed are, by the government yes okay. yeah are there any other ones that uh, any last thing you want to um, pop in there before we close the exemptions i just wanted to touch on that the public service commission did the exemptions for their government employees 76 people applied for an exemption 67 of the those were declined, and I was quite surprised that the criteria for the exemption actually came from the Nova Scotia Public Service Commission and the Nova Scotia Department of Justice. They were the ones that, that created the exemptions for people, which was very hard to get an exemption. Um, and the other thing that I just want to mention briefly is in the adverse events following immunization for the year 2022, um, on page four at the bottom, a category of adverse events following immunization labeled other serious or unexpected events are not shown, but are relatively frequent. These primarily include reoccurring conditions, gout and cancer. So they have actually acknowledged that reoccurring cancer 
in their, this is a government document, um, in January 2022. Which just leads me to Statistics Canada saying that the third week of January 2022 was the deadliest week in Canada since the pandemic began with 27% more deaths than would be expected. Um, and then recently we've had an article in the CBC, Nova Scotia tight-lipped about spike in deaths. Unexpected high numbers of people are dying in an untimely fashion. Um, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Questions. Um, Ms. Hickson, the commissioners may have questions. Yes, sorry. Is, my, is this on? Can you hear me? Oh, there we go. Um, thank you for that. Thank you. I just have a couple of questions actually around the freedom of information process. Mm -hmm. um, did you experience any issues uh, in having your request granted? Unreal. It's been unreal. I, I had to be so determined and patient. There were so many stumbling blocks. Even when there was, I, I would apply, they'd extend it for another 30 days, and then they'd say, oh, you know, 30 days, the extension's at 60 days, then it's going to cost you 500, this is one FOIPAP, $540. And it was an important one, so a few of us chipped in on it. And then even when I, I paid the 540, they then did not grant me the information. So it's 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 been unreal. Yes. And how do you think they could improve that process? Mm. That's a great question. Um, freedom of information is not free. Um, Ontario, I believe, under their act, it, it it's more so than here in Nova Scotia. They they have the liberty to. Um, I feel put it as a stumbling block in your way. So I would like to see if, if it's true, if what I was being told, Ontario can't, can't do that. So I would like to see it. It's, it's our information. They are public employees. Um, none of this I should have done, had to do, um, through freedom of information requests. It should have been given to us. And then we wouldn't have been scared. Yeah. I have a couple of questions. I'll start with a more sort of a medical, maybe it's out of your mm -hmm. expertise, but I, I noticed that the many of the cases reported were sort of anaphylactic mm -hmm. shock. Uh, are you aware whether they make any distinction between anaphylactic to some drug or septic shock? Because yeah. septic shock can actually be induced by LPS. Okay. That have been shown recently to be a fairly present contaminant in the mRNA preparation. Yeah, that is, uh, sadly, that is beyond my scope, but. They yeah, haven't no. made the distinction. The, no. You, you've never seen I've it. never seen it in my information. <coughs> okay. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, my other question is this is a very thorough work you've done. Be, your dedication is impressive. Mm -hmm. If you would now, 
synthesize the message you can gather from all of the data from the government site and contrast that with the message on the government site. What would, what would be your appreciation? So I'm thinking, I'm hearing you say, like comparing what I know and, and what they've told us from this and what they've told us from... I think it's, I think it's sad that they, they didn't provide the context and they created so much fear. And with the fear, um, people went out and, and got vaccinated for something based on my numbers has a 99.5 recovery. Um, that troubles me that we have those types of people that would do that to us in our government. It, it, it troubles me to see that there were no, nobody, nobody was in ICU. And yet on the meet, in the media line, it, it felt like we were just being totally overwhelmed. The hospitals were overwhelmed. The schools were, you know, I, in my, in my mind, I cannot fathom why anybody would want to do that to people. Like I, it troubles me that that's who we have in leadership positions. So, maybe one last question. Yeah. <clears throat> a pandemic is a global event, so you would expect that you would have similar number across provinces in Canada or the states or other country. When I look at the number you have compiled for Nova Scotia. By and large, that seems to be fairly low mm -hmm. compared to what we've seen from other places. Mm -hmm. So do you think that there's something special about people or in Nova Scotia or the way the pandemic has been running in the province? I feel with media lines that they used across the country, um, I bet... I bet if you went to every province and did exactly what I did, you'd be quite surprised. I, I, I feel that it would expose the truth. I do feel that we've been bamboozled into thinking that something was really deadly. And I, I don't think that happened. I, I think it was like when you look at even the deceased case and it can be probable and from a clinically compatible illness, I mean, to a coronavirus, like, like, and they're, they're including that in account. It's pretty easy to get those numbers up, right? And, and then people in long-term care, sadly, when they die, they, they do fill up with mucus. Like, it, it, to swab that, like, okay, you've got the symptoms of COVID. Like, so, and here in Nova Scotia, what is it? The 83, 83 is the median age of somebody dying of, COVID-19 in the province. The, the life expectancy in, in Nova Scotia is 80. Like, <laughs> we've got to start. Thank, thank you for your th questions. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, you talked a fair bit about ICU beds in the province. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a couple of questions. One is, did you also ask about the ICU bed staffing? Because it's one thing to say you have a bed and it's another thing to uh, have a staffed bed. That's a great question. And I, I did. 
I asked for the number of beds that were staffed over the last two or three, 2019, 2020, and I believe it's for 2021. And there are 3,000, around 3,100 and some staffed beds. And I didn't see a decrease. Now, that might be happening in 2022. Um, I, I did do another freedom of information asking how many people were um, no longer working um, or who were out on COVID, and that seems to be growing. So, yes, that's a great question. Yeah. My next question, again, has to do with ICU beds. And I thought I heard that you were looking at stats prior to 2019. And so my question is, did you look at ICU bed numbers in the province, say from four or five years ago, and then try to see what the trend was, whether the ICU beds in the province prior to the uh, pandemic were increasing or decreasing or staying the same? Um, that's what this beauty chart here, the first one, um, let's take a peek. And they're, they're staying, as far as the beds are concerned, they're staying about the same. As far as the ICUs, hospitalizations, just particularly with COVID, I think they could be seeing a bit of a problem. So there is another fold in there with the ICU beds, and it looks to me like they've tripled for, for COVID um, ICUs. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one last question, because I know we're short on time, and mm -hmm. this is more or less based on the testimony we had earlier from Dr. Phillips. Mm -hmm. And you talked about a number of adverse reactions and you did a, um, a FOIA request on that. Do you have any information as to how many of those adverse reactions were actually reported into the CAFIS system? No, not into that system. I don't. I, I see where I've done freedom of information requests and the numbers I've got, and now I'm seeing a change in those numbers, like they're decreasing. Um, they're not increasing. Like, So I do question how much cleaning of the data uh, they may be doing. I don't think they're all getting in there. And when I start to see the emails and the number of strokes and things that are happening, and then I see the serious adverse events, the, the the number should be much higher. There's there's something going on there, in my opinion. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for your uh, presentation. I just have one quick question. Given that the chief medical officers across the country had the same messaging for communications to the populace, I'm just wondering why the the there was different mandates and measures put in place from Nova Scotia to other provinces within the Canada, in within the country. Did any of the FY for your information requests actually give any evidence to why that would be happening? Thank you. No, the media lines that I received were primarily uh, dealing with reactions to the vaccine. So they were specific to that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this broadcast of the National Citizens' Inquiry. It's so important to get the testimonies of Canadians out there, so please share on all your channels and invite your friends and family to listen in. As always, you can head over to nationalcitizensinquiry.ca to sign our petition and find out more on how you can take personal responsibility 
from the National Citizens Inquiry, thank you. The world is watching.